today the topic is orcs. So I'm curious, Dan, you often talk about Oscar, your orc barbarian, but you guys very rarely talk about how often you use orcs as a bad guy. Like, I mean, you've, you've had them for your players to fight and such, but have you ever had one as like your big bad evil guy? And uh, how did you do that? How did you make that work? I don't know, man. You want to roll initiative? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. I got a one. You got a 15. You're not starting off well. <laughs> um, yes, I have. Um, my big thing with orcs is you have to use them early for them to have their true impact. So, um, I'm, I, they're always a, they're always a threat, maybe not necessarily the main threat, but I have also had them been the masterminds behind everything. Um, usually that's when they're commanding goblin hordes, but, uh, I mean, that doesn't fit the lore so much anymore. Yeah, honestly, I've never used them as a big bad. I've never even used them as bad. I had them as an environmental hazard in one campaign to push my guys forward into the actual campaign. Yeah. I use them just to herd the party forward. But no, um, I find the lore is so rich. And most of my campaigns in the last three or four years have started off mid-tier two. And I really want to play with orcs mid-tier one all the way up into tier three. So until it's time to actually dig into the lore, I don't want to touch them. Okay. I just love what Fit Dead has to offer. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the hulking humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Adam, and with me today, of course, as always, is Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Adam. And Dan's just spilled <laughs> beer all over himself for a sound effect. Goddamn, that was not the way that was supposed to go. <laughs> anyway, this episode is called Orc Hordes. Orkin Horde or Hordley Orkin? God damn it, Adam. <laughs> I knew I would need a beer for this one. Yeah, so we've reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what an orc horde looks like in 5th edition. We covered the stats and details last episode for the basic orc, the orc war chief, the eye of Groomsh, Orok, and Tanarok. And the Orok. And the Orok. And now we're covering five more orcish entries from the published 5e material, specifically though from Volo's Guide to Monsters. You can also check out our 15th episode from way back when we were noobs at this called Orcs, the Sword and Board Horde, where we covered orcs by the broad strokes and discussed <laughs> fun inspiration ideas with Terry back then. So we spoke last time about kind of what orc life was, and we talked about the basic orc and a lot about the leadership as well. But this time we're going to dig a little bit more into the daily life and kind of the mentality behind them. Sure. Orcs are known as fearsome warriors. And considering that the average stats for a commoner is 10 across the board... The standard Strength 16, Dex 12, and Con 16 of the average Orc is downright devastating in one-on-one -on -one combat. The basic idea as well is that an Orc is as good as any two player characters. It's no wonder then that Orcs believe in their might makes right tactics. Their beliefs in their pantheon also supports this, and Orcs completely believe that their gods are invincible. This is the lens through which they see the world. The strong survive. In nature, in war, in contests and trials, the strong survive. 
But the unique thing about orcs, as opposed to the other strength-based races in D&D, like Goliaths and Bugbears and Minotaurs, is that the orcs have an inherent fear built into their religion. Mm -hmm. They don't worship and revere their gods like others do. They fear and appease them. When they do their gods' bidding, it is simply to avoid punishment and consequence. And because their gods are savage and brutal, orcs are savage and brutal. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that shit flows downhill for sure. Now, and it really does. It goes from orcs to the war chief to the random orc to the slave. Yeah, all the way down. Yeah. Now, it really does feel like an orc raised outside orc society would be a very, very different individual. They give that impression heavily in the lore as well, where, I mean, a lot of the stat blocks you see, orcs are chaotic evil. But when you're reading the lore of them, they feel more neutral. And they often say things like an orc live like raised in a civilized uh, human society, for example, is probably got that aggression. They're they're a little bit more aggressive in your face, but they're not malicious. They're not evil. No, as a matter of fact, Groomsh feels chaotic. Yeah, and the orcs follow his rule. This is the same thing about cultists that follow chaotic evil deities, right? Is I sit there and I say the cultists are still following the laws. They're actually being lawful. They're following the rules. They're just chaotic rules. Yeah. And the moment you take those rules away, they tend to go back to kind of a neutral state. Yeah. Now, most people are only familiar with orcs that are raiders and marauders and warriors, but that's because most people don't survive the first wave of attack. The first waves are made up of orcs who worship Groomsh, Bogtrue, and Ilnival. Groomsh, of course, is the head of the Pantheon. We talked about him a little bit last episode. Big angry one-eye. Yes. And... He's by far the most fearsome of the orc gods. Dan, would you like to tell us more about your big angry one-eye? I'd rather not. Okay. Um, Groomsh is actually known as he who watches, which gives a bit of a double meaning to the orcs who call themselves the eyes of Groomsh. As we spoke about last episode, Groomsh had his eye shot out in combat with Corallon Laurentian, who is the uh, essentially head of the elven pantheon. Yeah, yeah. He's the creator of all the elves. And, uh, and so Groomsh has sworn vengeance upon elf kind. To become an Eye of Groomsh, an orc has to undergo a specific ritual that includes removing one of his or her own eyes, mirroring Groomsh's physical defect as a symbol of pure devotion. I love the fact that the god named, you know, Orc One uh, Groomsh One Eye, he who watches, is the dude with one eye. Well, it's because his eye never blinks, according to the lore. He is he is the unblinking eye. As someone who has often walked into things because I've had to squint. I'm actually dealing with an eye injury right now because I had to squint and I walked into a door. I just see this like orc with severe periphery issues, like just and depth issues. Like he's trying to unlock a thing and he just keeps missing. You uh, are a pain in my ass. <laughs> so um, while there is a particular savage hatred for elves, Groomsh is also an equal opportunity hater. And all orc kind is united in his relentless slaughter and unwavering vengeance against humans, dwarves, and all other peoples of the realms. And it's this hatred and rage that gives all orcs the aggressive trait and what keeps them unorganized and operating from instinct as opposed to relying on logic or calmness and measured responses. Now, leaders and orc chiefs, they wield savagery and viciousness as a way to keep their horde in line, much the same way that Groomsh does. So, as you're saying, shit rolls downhill on this. They're really emulating what Groomsh does, 
But again, not because they worship him, because they're afraid of him. Yeah. And if he says this is the way to do it, then they've got to do it that way too, because that's how you stay in his favor. Yeah, you fear the repercussions if you don't do what he says. Yeah, and remember that in Dungeons and Dragons, these gods aren't some distant invisible force. They are proven beings that can, have, and will interact with mortals on the material plane. These threats aren't necessarily empty, even though they might be distant. For example, while every orc cows to Groomsh's whim, he selects those who stand out and blesses them with increased physical abilities, as well as magical powers and tactical wisdom. If an orc completes a particularly noteworthy feat of strength or shows incredible ferocity in battle, they may be blessed with a vision or a dream, and if it doesn't drive them immediately mad with the fear of the future and the propensity to see omens and prophecies in everything around them, which, by the way, does fucking happen all of the time oh, according yeah. to the lore, then they can become imbued with Groomsh's power and rise in the ranks. To become an Eye of Groomsh is considered the highest honor, and Groomsh blesses both them and whatever weapon they wield. The rest of the orcs in the Horde hold these warriors in such high regard that even the elderly and infirm that used to be Eyes of Groomsh are still treated with respect and awe instead of being cast out like they do with anyone else who can't carry their own weight. Mm -hmm. After all, these are the orcs who not just avoided Groomsh's wrath, but earned his fucking favor. This is important because, as I pointed out last episode, all orcs join Groomsh and the other orc deities in the afterlife. But this isn't a heaven or hell situation. There's no nirvana here. This is an eternity of war and battle and struggle on Acheron. But the thing is, orcs would have it no other way. Because they don't have a choice, though. Well, because they I'm don't have a choice. I'm not certain that that's necessarily I, true. I, I think there's a certain amount of Stockholm Syndrome that has fallen over the orc brand where not only are they operating in fear and, and reveling in it, but there's a certain amount of, if if you are raised in an orc thing, you actually revel in the violence as well. Well, there's definitely an indoctrination. I'm going to get into yeah. that in a little while. But for the most part, though, I think that if you were to take an orc infant out of the horde, while there still be that fury because they come from Groomsh, mm-hmm. right? He created them. It's not going to be the same uh, bloodlust for battle and combat. Okay, so I just mentioned Acheron, and it is the plane of existence that ha- that. So I just mentioned Acheron, and it's the plane of existence that hangs between the lawful evil realm of the Nine Hells and the lawful neutral realm of Mechanus. While it has four infinite layers, it's not built like the other planes. It is a nigh-infinite series of floating iron cubes of incredible size that hurtle through an infinite void, and each cube is covered in massive scars and dents from impacts when other cubes have bounced off them. Now, the interesting thing about these cubes is that no matter what side you're standing on, gravity points toward the center. While the cubes don't have gravity to pull each other into clumps, and the iron doesn't have a magnetic pull, for creatures running along the surface, gravity feels the same as if they were on the material plane. There's no energy or elemental quality to this plane, and only the deities that walk Acheron can warp and shift the landscape. I just love the idea of a massive, like, battle on the surface of one of these cubes, and then, like, it's interrupted from another cube hurtling along that just meets that flat-to-flat of the cubes perfectly. And just squishes everybody. And just squishes everybody and flies away. 
But like one of the dents in the other one kind of cups this one dude. And so there's one guy that stands up and he's been fine. And everyone's dead. And he's all like, I've been favored by Grooms. <laughs> um, the only things actually in the void beside the cube that are um, kind of floating around are these enormous flocks of ravens, vultures, gulls, bloodhawks, and swallows, apparently. That's weird. Yeah. Um, but actually, there's also the river Styx. Just real quick. European or African swallow? And does it grab the cubes by the husk? Um, if European, I'm not going to swallow. Okay. Anyway, the river Styx, which actually does flow by its own bizarre fluid mechanics, originating in this plane. Originating in Acheron. Yeah, and it flows down to uh, the Nine Hells, across the lower plains, and then up into Pandemonium and disappears. So each of these four layers, these infinite layers that have these cubes, each four of them have these cubes floating around. Them, right? Yes, but there's an asterisk, and I'll get into it in a second. Okay, I'm just wondering where and what does the start of this river sticks look like? Apparently it's just generated from the interior of one of the cubes. Okay, on, and on it the just upper level, on and, the upper and, level. and it yeah. floats all the way through. So, like the origin of the river Styx is changing. consistently moving. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, and no one knows where it comes from within the within the cube. Well, there's a campaign idea for you. So, um, it actually consistently shifts and moves and splashes and touches down on all these other cubes that are moving around. Remember, the river sticks wipes memories clean, right, and reduces you to your zero state. It's said that the void actually itself is full of tumultuous winds, and uh, those winds carry the sounds of battle no matter where you are in the plane. Okay. So you hear these loud thumps and clangs and the bubbling of water, and, and because of these winds that are moving, it's not... It's not big gusts of winds, not gale force winds. You can see these massive flocks flying on them. But you're also getting these sounds of constant strife and combat uh, all of the time. It's kind of it's it's kind of like pandemonium. Pandemonium is very similar to it, except pandemonium is I believe a series of tunnels and the entire realm itself is made of bedrock or something like that. Or uh, maybe I'm thinking, uh, what's the, there's one that is just like a barren landscape of just hyper-moving wind and howling. No, that's pandemonium, but it's the landscape is the... the oh, under the surface. Yeah, it's, it's just all tunnels the tunnels are and, yeah. full of wind and howling. Yeah, okay. Um, so just really quickly, I'm going to go through Acheron. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick breakdown because I want to get back to Oryx, but... You need to understand this to know what orcs think their afterlife is. Yeah. Okay, so the bottom layer of Acheron is known as the Blade Storm because among the cubes are shard-like chunks of black ice with razor-sharp razor, with razor edges. They, they just come whipping around all of the time. Cool. The third layer, Tintibulus, is made up of more than just cubes. It has three-dimensional shapes with a variety of sides, whether it's four, five, eight, whatever, but not cubes specifically. And every surface is covered in thick dust because these objects are made from gray volcanic stone. There are many magicians' libraries scattered around this layer, and it's widely known that this is the best place in the multiverse for magical research. So the place with gigantic floating polyhedrons is the place, best place for wizards to do their research? That tracks. Yeah, I'm, honestly, this feels like it's a little bit of fan service. Oh, I'm on board with it. That that fits. Like, how often are you going to go to the third layer of Acheron, right? Sure. Uh, the second layer is rich with treasure to be mined, but there's a giant fucking asterisk here. Um, while it is mostly gems and precious metals, 
It is also home to a fucking rust dragon, whatever the shit that is. Is that official 5e lore? Uh, that's official D&D lore. 5e's not really covered Acheron outside of a paragraph in, I want to say, the Dungeon, the Dungeon Master's, Master's Guide. Yeah. So, that's what it. What the that's fuck is get. a rust dragon? Yeah, it's something from a previous edition. Huh. Um, the reason that this area is so rich in these resources is because it is the universal junkyard of battle where all the refuse from wars across the plains appears inside these massive hollow cubes where it slowly turns to stone. Everything on this layer of Acheron will eventually petrify, even people, and the labyrinths and mines that lead down into these treasure troves of legendary weapons and war machines is full of visitors who overstayed their welcome and turned to stone. Huh. They say that uh, in the uh, lore... Intelligent, smart visitors won't stay longer than 29 days. That's how long you're guaranteed to be okay, and then it's time to get the fuck out. Hmm. So, as a side note, also, I noticed that uh, this is the realm where the Steel Predators are said to have originated, which I guess makes sense thematically, because Modrons are known to have secret mines in all three of these lower layers of Acheron, and the inhabitants of Mechanus often explore these layers for resources, which is how they keep building these massive gears. That makes sense, in, yeah. In Mechanus, right? So. Yeah, they just go mine the battlefields for more steel to make a planet-sized gear. It's not even mining the, the battlefields, right? It's just if you lose your sword on a battlefield that is never to be seen again, it's because it somehow magically ended up inside one of these gigantic cubes on in Acheron. Okay. Anyway, Modrons tend to stay clear of the top layer if they can, even though that's the place that borders on Mechanus and the Nine Hells. Okay. This level is known as the Battlefield, and not just because of the nearby Blood War. This top layer is where Groomsh and his Pantheon live, and also where they fight Maglubiot, the god of goblinoids. This is the highest density of cubes, and fortresses and battlefields litter the plain. The realm of Nishrek specifically is the home of Groomsh and his ilk, but the battles have been known to spill out onto other parts of Acheron as they ebb and flow. Orcs, goblinoids, and historians refer to this conflict as the Eternal War. And it's just orcs and goblins? Goblinoids. Okay. So so orcs and hobgoblins and bugbears and goblins are just... Yeah, but you would expect to see things like... Um, like, I would guess if a Tanarak dies, it would come here as well, okay. right? Like, it's going to be the Orc Horde and the Goblinoid Host. All of it comes over here. All right. I would say that, you know, uh, Sacred Aurochs and whatnot would, would be available on this um, on this plane as well. Cool. Right? And then there's a bunch of predatory birds and swallows, apparently, um, just dicking around in the air waiting to eat whatever's left over. Right? Or just stuff that fall off when there's an impact, yeah. So, um, anyway, I mentioned the other deities, and there's a pantheon here, and so, um, and, I, and I mentioned uh, Ilnaville and Bogtrue before. These are the other two warrior gods of the orc pantheon. Ilnaville is known as the War Maker, and Bogtrue is called the Leg Breaker. Cool. Yeah. You're going to know why in a minute. So, uh, these two represent the two sides of Orc Warfare. Ilnaville is the right-hand man to Groomsh because he's a master strategist and fearsome tactician. 
He's the brains behind the army, and his followers are battle captains that follow the orders of the war chief. Any young orc who exhibits particular aptitude for strategy is thought to be blessed by Ilnaville and then groomed to become fearsome warriors who wield impressive blades just as Ilnaville himself does. They're known for having keen instincts in battle and being able to lead the warriors in their command to great victory. But no matter how cunning orcs can be, they will always be savage and brutal, and that's because of Bogtrue. He is the deity who represents strength and ruthlessness, and he promotes the idea of reckless, overwhelming destruction. Ah, the orc way. While Groomsha's symbol is an eye and Ilnival's is a sword, Bogtru's is a broken femur. <laughs> According to legend, he fought a Bahir with hundreds of legs and systematically broke all of its legs, <laughs> proving that anything can be broken if you're strong enough. <laughs> So, <laughs> just imagine uh, this guy having to take a lunch break halfway through the legs. Just, well, uh, it's a it's a job breaking a bahir's legs. Well, have you you know what a bahir is? Yeah, yeah but yeah. for those that don't, a bahir is a like massive lizard. It's like with, a it's like a dragon centipede. Yeah, kind of, but it's it's very lizard, and it's got the electrical breath and whatnot as yeah. well. Like these things are actually pretty powerful and pretty scary. I think they're huge size. Yeah, and this thing is supposed to be like the mother of all of them, and. Um, according to the lore, it wrapped all of its legs around Bogtrue, and then he laughed and grinned, and was and he welcomed the challenge and was thankful for it, and then systematically snapped all of its femurs. Uh, Bogtrue is officially my favorite. <laughs> um, so, the other thing that I really like is that, um, according to the legend, uh, every time that you see lightning. That's actually that Bahir's screams because they've got lightning breath echoing through the land because Bogtru is still breaking its fucking legs. Like to this day. Yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm down. So um, you can see where this idea of strength couples with cruelty in an orc's mind, right? Yep. And most orcs that an adventurer might meet away from the horde are young orcs who are out in the world trying to prove the ferocity and strength. Now, last episode, Dave talked to us about battle bulls that orcs ride called Aurochs. Bogtru is also the god of Aurochs because he's been known to ride a massive bull into battle. As you can imagine, orcs are only interested in the most brutal of these creatures, so while they are unaligned, they're also ferocious. One of my favorite pieces of trivia about orcs is that they hold Aurochs as sacred and much like Hindu people do, they refrain from eating the flesh of their sacred bovines. That's really cool. I actually really like that that flavor to it because yeah. you would always think like maybe there's a herd of aurochs following them for cattle. Yeah. But no, man. They're they're mounts. They're like they're respected warriors that are part of the horde. Yeah, right? Um they are like a Mongolian horde's horses. Is kind of what I'm thinking. Like as the well. Dothraki and their horses. Right? Yeah, right. Like these things are sacred. They're a treasure. They're part of the family. You eat dinner with your auroch getting a spot at the table. Yeah, kinda. Yeah, right. Now, while Grumsh and Ilnival and uh, Bogtru are savage and warfaring, there's a force within the pantheon that holds the horde together, and that force is Grumsh's wife, Luthic, the cave mother. She makes orc society work as a cohesive unit. 
keeping it from splintering off to become small nomadic bands of warriors. She encourages her followers to use superstition, omens, and traditions to promote fear and force in the brood while they huddle around the warmth of fires deep in the caves where they raise their young. But, while she is more organized and nurturing, there is very little that you might call maternal. There's some nurse, nurse Cratchit stuff going on here. Kinda. She is often thought to take the form of a giant bear, and her followers actually keep cave bears to guard the whelping pens full of the nasty squabbling orc younglings. Orklings? I'm going to call them orklings. I like the idea of younglings. Orklings sound... Younglings sound like Anakin Skywalker is about to kill them. I, that's fair, but orkling sounds like the sound a river makes trickling down a hill. Orkling? Yeah. Anyway, the worshippers of Luthic... <laughs> Tangent! Those who worship Luthic are unique and a little bit strange. They act as crafters of crude weapons, engineers of basic items and fixers, diggers of tunnels, and builders of war wagons and basic structures. Am I a worshipper of Luthic? Kinda. But the primary focus is on keeping the young safe when they are raised to be future warriors. Luthic sees the big picture, and so do her followers. And I do mean the big picture. She understands that the goblinoid armies on Acheron are numerous, and it's her that urges massive population growth and prolific reproduction among the orcs. We've said a couple of times in this podcast that orcs, dragons, and humans are the big breeders in D&D. They will breed with anything, and they can breed with anything. Yeah. Half-orcs are common across... It's not just half-human, half-orc. An orc will breed with anything, and it becomes a half-orc, right? Yeah. So that is because of Luthic and her mentality. For her, it's not just about the battles of the material plane. It's about the cosmic battle. This might be why her followers are in charge of daily life, but don't seem too interested in creature comforts. After all, this is just the proving ground before moving on to a more important battle. It's said that Maglubiet has never faced an enemy as protective and ferocious as Luthic, and that she yearns for the opportunity to take the field and claw Maglubiet's eyes out. Her signature claws have even inspired her followers to grow long claws and paint them black like Luthic's. Cool. Yeah, she rewards them by making their nails strong and tough, seeming like iron. Seriously, don't underestimate her. It's commonly thought that when the dust settles on Acheron and the war is over, Luthic is going to be the last god standing. She kind of uh, embodies that uh, collective orc mentality, whereas like Groomsh is the 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 conquest. I see. And, I uh, see him. Bogtru is the savagery, and Ilnaval is the cunning. Like I would say, the Groomsh is the fury more than more than the conquest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're the, he's the aggressive. Like the, this is something that I think translates across not even just editions, but also just. Iterations of orcs in different uh, intellectual properties throughout um, our world. Like you have our orcs here in D&D 5e are cunning and brutal. And orcs in 40k, that's their whole thing. Their two gods, Mork and Gork, are about... Fuck, I hate that. Being cunning but brutal or brutal but cunning. And that's what they're about. And uh, like... You see that all the way through. You get that in right? Dragonlance. You get that in in Greyhawk. You get that like Eberron does it differently, and they're about the only one I know that does even 
Lord of the Rings does orcs that way, right? Well, yeah. I mean, their their orcs are brutal, but they're also very intelligent. They're not just, you know, they're goblins. Yeah. You just really don't like goblins. Hey? You use them as freaking... They're like- fodder. And they've always been fodder. It's very hard for me to cross that mind. And, and I've wanted to play a hobgoblin character for this reason. Uh, to kind of bridge that gap. But to understand hobgoblins is strategic and unifying and uh they are the legion right i have trouble reaching that point because i then go yeah they're still goblins though but they're really but they're really not. not and i i intellectually i know that but whenever i see like you fall back in your old tropes i i, I want to put a little bit of that i i don't want to say silliness into a hobgoblin horde but or a hobgoblin legion, like there's their discipline, their regimented. I don't know even. That. I don't even put that into the just the goblins. I mean, we're off topic here, but yeah. But I don't even do that there. I, look, let's put a pin in this until next episode when we start tackling the goblins. Okay, fine, fine. So I want to come back to the life of orcs, more specifically the, the death of orcs. orcs. Yeah. So uh, in many ways, death comes rapidly and often to orcs, and battle is hard. Many wounds fester. And the god Yertris, known as the White Hand, thank you, Saruman, Saruman, nurtures those with the most disgusting and debilitating diseases. He focuses on the balance of life and death and keeps these poor orcs as as virulent and contagious as possible, (laughs) while still able to be mobile warriors. And the guy that walks into the bar and is like, hey guys, I got the clap. Who's next? Pretty much. Yikes. This, ladies and gentlemen is where biological warfare enters D&D. You see, Yertris pushes these infected bastards out into the world, often under the cover of early morning fog, to rush into the enemy lines and spread diseases and affliction to everyone they can. Just because you're dying doesn't mean that you can't kill your enemies. You see, Yertris himself is covered in rot and oozing pustules, except for his pristine and pure white hands. Hence the nickname, the White Hand. So I guess it pays to wash your hands. I, I mean, well, is it COVID time? I, I I have a question. Orcs in D anD D five e are more gray. They're not the green skins we know from previous editions. They're, they're not even remotely the... green. They are. Com- you said they're gray to green, and I, I let that slide because traditionally they're green, and people think green. Yeah, but no, they're gray. Like they're gray. All right? of it, everything except the artwork. For one of the creatures we're going to talk about today, which is the diseased version. Yeah. All of it's gray. Um, I, I, the, this idea of like the white pristine hands. What do pristine white orc hands look like? Are they like well manicured? Like is, is there, is there some, I don't know, some godlike I'll, I'll explain estheticians I'll explain who like you. fix his hands every day. Well, look. Those who follow Yertris, there are a couple things. One, they don't battle, ever. They are priests and shamans, hard stop. Mm-hmm. So they don't see combat. They're also the only ones that don't deal with animals or beasts. When they talk about white hands, what I think they mean is um, pristine, never seen battle, no calluses. Huh. These will be the soft hands because these are death worshippers and priests and shamans. And I'll... And, Keep that in mind as I keep going. Like it, it gets fucking weird, Dan. So just, just shamans, uh, shamans, shaman, not shaman. It's shaman. No, it's shaman. It's a shaman. Oh god, we're gonna have a fight. 
This is the one this thing. Like like, someone, no, this is like someone saying foyer. I want to punch you. It's foyer. <laughs> All right. So if you're American and you're listening to this and you say foyer, you're wrong. It's foyer. I'll die on this hill. Well, hurry up then. So back to Yertris. Sure. I have one more thing. Oh, of I course see, you do. I see Yertris and Ilnival working closely together. You're totally wrong. Well, here's why. Ilnival's going to be the guy with the catapults. Yertris is going to be the guy loading his diseased buddies into the catapults and sending them over the walls into the enemy territory. I feel, no, I, I feel like it's the Eye of Groomsh that, that's going to be loading the catapults. Sure, yeah. Because they're back row. Um, those that worship Ilnival are front row fighters. They're the first ones into combat. Well, so, that, that's why I'm saying, like, load them on, lo- load these worshippers onto a catapult and launch them okay. over the walls. Uh, all right, hold on. So you need to understand something about these. The worshippers are not the ones with diseases. The worshippers are the priests and shamans. There you go. You fuck nugget. <laughs> so because what they do is they get all of these people that are um, that are diseased. These are regular orcs. That are then brought into their care. Yeah. And then what they do is they promote the disease within these regular orcs who want to go out and do damage. And they say, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. We'll keep you just alive enough to still be useful as we make you sicker and sicker and sicker. This is horror. I, it's I, pure body horror. I love the idea of like a big burly ass orc with a plague doctor mask. Uh, yeah, kind of. Except that it said that... Uh, that Yertris doesn't have a mouth and that this represents the silence of death that will envelop even the hardiest of warriors. Now, obviously, this makes all the other orcs in the horde uneasy, which is why I say Ilnavil doesn't want anything to do with Yertris. They keep the infected orcs on the outskirts of their society for safety reasons, but there are some shamans for you, Dan, or shamans for other people who dwell among the diseased orcs and devote themselves to the silent worship of Yertris. They collect the bones of the fallen brethren and help nurture the disease in the ill. And they also speak with the dead spirits of orcs and listen to the telepathic whispers of Yertris so they can gain powerful magic spells. Cool. They cover their hands in white ash or make gloves from the pale skins of dead elves so they can mimic the god who teaches them about death. And any orc with pale hands can be assumed to be a necromancer. If, I'm sorry, this is all super metal and badass. I love all of this. I, 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 you look surprised with all this. Did you not know this? I, no, I didn't I didn't know that. Like Gloves made of like the delicate skin of elves. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if the diseased members of the horde make the others uneasy then these necromantic shamans absolutely terrify them. Some of their practices are insane. For example, honored warriors who have fallen in battle, including respected foes, have their heads severed, their flesh boiled off, and their faces smashed in to create one large hole meant to symbolize the remaining Eye of Groomsh. Any orc who fell in a failed battle is just abandoned as a worthless member of the Horde who isn't worthy of Groomsh or the afterlife, but those who die of old age are watched over by these shamans in their final days, and their bones are cleaned and used to build furnishings and structures in the shrines to Yertris. Can you imagine a campaign based around coming into like an abandoned orc camp? 
Oh, um, running across this crazy shit? And running across, like, okay, this was a Yurtris-focused camp. Like, this was a society run. It's Wartreef was a worshiper of Yurtris. Well... And has been kept aside and was cleansed by the other orcs. Well, it's interesting because when a horde gets big enough, or when a tribe becomes big enough or whatnot, every tribe that makes up the horde, um, every one of these tribes has a uh, like a section for Yurtris. You are not a full tribe unless you have something for each one of the gods. Yeah. So... As much as like you can focus a little bit more on your Triss or a little bit more on Groomsh, you always focus on Groomsh first. You cannot become a leader unless Groomsh specifically anoints you. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, and even the Eye of Groomsh or um, those that worship the other pantheon, they can rise in the ranks, but they do not get to be leader. So, even though these custodians of the dead are seen as useful members of the tribe, they're still kept on the outskirts. But there are others who are considered to be even too weird and depraved to be blessed by Yurtris. And they follow our last god of the day, Shargas. Shargas is the god of darkness and the unknown. He is deceitful, secretive, and murderous, which is completely counter to what Groomsh says. Groomsh is in the room, banging his chest, saying, Come at me, bro. Shargas is in the back, just slowly cutting you with the razor blade where he knows you're not going to feel it, but you're starting to get lightheaded from blood loss. Hmm. Only Groomsh is safe from Shargas. And while the followers of Shargas are outcasts, they're still considered part of the Horde. Reluctantly, Shargas' main deal is darkness. And he dons magical darkness the way that Dan dons faded t-shirts that are only cool to aging nerds who were raised in the 90s. Hey, and plaid. And plaid. Shargas grants his cultists the ability to see in magical darkness, which is why they call him the Night Lord. They're the spies and scouts, and they even spy on their own horde. While most live in the furthest layers from the rest of the horde, some will infiltrate the ranks of the basic warriors and call the weakest in the dead of night. War chiefs who prove to be failures are kidnapped in the dead of night and ritualistically murdered and eaten. Woof. While these practices are considered necessary by most hordes and tribes, speaking about these practices is forbidden. And when someone has disappeared, they're said to be, quote-unquote, with Shargas, and then never mentioned again. To be claimed like this is a shameful thing, and while some war chiefs may secretly call on these cults to help them out with an opponent or rival, or even assassinate or kidnap an enemy, this is a last resort. Oftentimes, the war chief will have to pay a hefty price of slaves, food, tools, or something else that the cult finds valuable. As you can see, showing power and strength and hiding inherent fear are the two main parts of the orc mentality, but it's the fear of their gods that drive them forward. The priests and shamans, or shamans, fuck you Dan, they see omens everywhere, and they know how to interpret signs that they've seen before. But, surprisingly, they'll show caution and meditate for days on a new kind of omen they've seen before. This confused me until I stopped and meditated for a few days on it myself. And I realized that this is because they are... Um, they're not like monks that you're expecting with in D&D. They're not calm. They're not contemplating what's best for the Horde. This is because they fear retribution for leading others in the wrong direction due to misinterpretation of the omens. Oh my goodness. So, 
Like they'd be sitting there like, ah, crap, there's a new omen. Ah, okay, we have to gut all of the firstborns. All of the firstborns need to be gutted. Well, no. uh, Now, gather them all. Now. No, no, no. And then someone else will say, well, wait a minute. What if it means this? And then they have to go away for a few days and debate and meditate and figure it out. Because if they fuck it up and then the tribe or a squad or anything dies, then they misinterpreted it and they are no longer in Grumsh's favor. Uh, okay, cool. It is dangerous to be any sort of uh, spellcaster that can read omens. So, Volos actually has some fun uh, examples of superstitions that different orcs uh, may believe, but there's really no consistency from one tribe to another. In fact, there are really only basic commonalities between tribes, and they seem to be based upon the gods. So the gods are consistent everywhere, but everyone, every one of the tribes may be slightly different. If an adventurer ever runs into an orc tribe, it's best to determine what symbol they fly under, as well as the color of the symbol. If it's a new banner, then the superstitions and omens, and therefore behavior, might be different in numerous subtle ways. But these symbols and iconography aren't exactly a full written language, and the dwarven script that's been borrowed here has been boiled down and perverted to convey only the simplest ideas. Go left, uh, trap here, beware, uh, and good hunting. These are signs that would be left behind. There's no grammar to speak of, and druids, rangers, nomads, and wilderness guides may even be able to recognize a symbol or two without having to know the exact translation. These notes are usually left behind after a raid in order to communicate with other orcs in the future. A more common way to communicate non-verbally among orcs is with the use of colors. Hey, Dan. Yes, Adam? What's black and white and red all over? An orc horde. And you're going to find out why that's funny. Seriously, these three colors have special significance to orcs. Black represents darkness and Shargas. White represents death and Yurtris. And red represents blood and battle and the rest. Now... If I were to extrapolate, this isn't in the lore, but I was really thinking about this, I would say that gray probably represents the sense of home. It's a balance between death and and the idea of of what Yurtris has to offer, uh, but also the darkness, the unknown that they come from as well. Mm-hmm. But it's not just because orcs have gray skin in 5th edition, but because they also live in caves and have dark vision, which we know exists in gray scale. Okay. So their homes might be considered gray. And they might consider um, magical darkness uh, to be so upsetting because they lose the ability to see in grayscale. As for the red, white, and black, each tribe within the Horde will implement the colors in different ways to show their uniqueness and identities. Some may paint their knuckles red, while others paint their blades white. It depends on how the different shamans work with the leadership in their own tribes to determine and display their place in Groomsh's Horde. If travelers encounter a number of these symbols and icons around the land, it means that an orc lair is probably near. Orcs do need a place to recover after battle, and so they have some home bases that often act as strongholds. They need to be easily defensible, so they tend to be underground or in mountainous regions. Dwarven kingdoms and gnomish mines are popular places for orcs to take over, but a fortress nestled against a cliff face or a keep in a gorge would also do. If given a choice... A war chief or leader will usually choose to make a new base underground, and places like ancient ruins and dilapidated structures are suitable only as temporary camps, not for permanent residence. 
Of course, if they come upon an elven site, as we said last time, even ruins, they'll destroy and desecrate everything they can before moving on. Yeah, that tracks. The ways in which layers are broken up is based upon the deities, giving Groomsh, Ilnival, Bogtru, and Luthic the best parts of the area, where while followers of Yurtris and Shargas are shunted off into the deep and undesirable areas. In the middle of the lair is the War Hearth, which is kept aflame at all times as a representation of Groomsh's unending fury within his unblinking eye. The coals from the hearth are placed in pots and kept hot while the horde is on the move so a new hearth can be created from the embers. It's kind of like the Olympic torch that way. That's actually kind of badass. Yeah, I like that. Um, This is important to orc society because this fire is a place for celebration and feasting. Most bases only last a year or two at most because orcs will hunt and gather on the land until there's nothing left and they will prey upon nearby settlements until the warriors deem that there's nothing left to raid. As long as the hearth stays lit... The omens are favorable, and the nearby prey is ample, a horde will stay as long as it can. Mm -hmm. In the lair itself, there will be a main chamber with places to worship Groomsh and Ilnival, and it's common for there to be piles of broken femurs as shrines to Bogtru. But most of Bogtru's followers will likely be camped in or around the entrance to the lair so they can prove their might and ferocity by protecting everyone else. So their act of worship is basically being the town guard. Yeah, they want to prove that they are strong. There's mostly young orcs that do this, that are trying to prove themselves um, to show how ferocious they can be, keeping in mind that if they succeed, Groomsh may notice them and then they get a promotion into an Eye of Groomsh or a war chief or whatever. I also like the idea of coming across, like your party comes across a small caravan that all of the legs have been chopped off. Oh, yeah. Like, you can get really fucking weird and gross with orcs, and people just use them as foot soldiers, right? And it drives me up. This is why I haven't used them, right? Anyway, um, the main area as well also has fighting pits, which I really like because... They're orcs. Yeah, well, this is not just meant for settling arguments. This is also a place for them to um, compete in strength-based challenges and whatnot. Meet and mingle. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, fighting pit becomes a different kind of fight. Yeah, it's it's uh, they go to plentyoffflesh.com. Yeah, hey, that was a that was a joke. Anyway, the surrounding areas will include <laughs> quarters <laughs> for the war chief to live, um, but he also is going to hold council with shamans and advisors and give rewards or punishments. This is also where his war wagon is going to be kept, as well as piles of the best spoils of war which are considered to be the leaders. There's also a shrine near the sleeping chambers of a war chief, and it's some sort of effigy, usually, of Groomsh, surrounded by bloody offerings. You can imagine how this smells. There will also be the whelping pens, and the quarters for Luthic's followers. These followers will keep the food stores close, and monitor not just the young, but also the slaves and cave bears. I would expect the most Orogs are around this area as well, but it doesn't say that specifically in Molos. At the threshold between the main portion of the camp and the depths below, the cultists of Yurtrus act as keepers of the dead and wardens of the diseased. There are shrines of bones and skulls littered around the area, and the stench of death is everywhere. But deep beyond these shrines, in the impenetrable darkness... Shargas's minions dwell and dig out hidden, secret passages 
that they use to come and go when they head out to complete their evil secret missions. There's usually a giant sharp stone painted red that indicates the beginning of their area, and it's from this stone that Shargas's cult gets their names, the Red Fangs of Shargas. Cool. Now, there are other parts of underground lairs, including corridors with crude traps, various shrines and fire pits for warriors to congregate around, and a dungeon for prisoners. Uh, loot that is not edible or useful is often on display as trophies or totems, and sacrifices to the gods are seen around every shrine, which are numerous. And while there are big ones in specific locations, they're really scattered, scattered about. Yeah. yeah, Any collection of broken femurs and skulls could be a uh, shrine. Pretty much. Uh, there are sleeping pits for the warriors, and they'll be scattered around the main area, but they tend to congregate around the main chambers if the layout permits. Uh, orcs will obviously need somewhere to keep their aurochs, and that will be near the entrance, and captured livestock will be kept nearby as well, while the cave bears will be cared for by Luthic's followers in the innermost chambers. The only other creatures found in an orc lair are giant bats, whom Shargas's followers train and ride as mounts. These giant bats will be kept near secret cracks and mountainsides and cliffs, so the assassins can come and go without anyone noticing. So, now between these two episodes, everyone should have a good understanding of orc society, as well as the pantheon, mentalities, tactics, beasts, and allies, and lairs. The last thing I always do, though, when designing a constant threat or enemy force, is name the enemy. Yeah. So last episode, we spoke briefly about the guttural noises that orcs use for names and stuff. And this lines up with the brutish sounds of their, of their language. The naming conventions are pretty standard, with most female names ending in a vowel sound, which seems to be standard across every race mm -hmm. in D&D. There's nothing that really shocks me on that, which is kind of shitty. Like it's, I like variety there, but Volos gives us some fun options. Male names are things like Grutok, Jawrock, and Abzug, while female names are generally slightly softer, like Onka, Sutha, Niga, and Engong. Now, most of the epithets that orcs have are well-earned because these honorific titles are given by other orcs. Cool. Things like Skin Flayer and Eye Gouger. You can have Shugog Elf Butcher, Mugrub the Brutal, and Mobad Skin Flayer. But these seem to be battle names. What about non-combatants? Are the epithets things that young orcs try to earn? Do you think that there's ironic names in orc society, like the big guy's name Tiny? Right? Like, how do you feel about this, Dan, about the naming convention? I, I don't think orcs are smart enough to have irony or metaphor in their naming convention. I think you're absolutely right. I think that they're totally blatant. Yeah. So, like, if, if you have... Uh, Tower Buck the Boil. The well-endowed. Yeah. Well, that's because he's got a massive... Boil. Boil. Yeah. Yeah. Just just a gigantic oozing... Pulsing, veiny, throbbing... Boil. That looks at you. He who watches. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, no, they're, they're going to be very blatant and on the nose with it. Um, the... <laughs> Better not be on your nose, man. <laughs> what are you doing down there? Boils just their face. Anyways, I have nothing else to add. No, you got totally distracted. You got sidelined by that big, pulsing, throbbing, hot boil. Boil. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think that getting a name has got to be a rite of passage for the young orcs as well. In, okay, this is going to be a 
maybe a bit of a tangent, but it's tangentially aligned, is uh, deaf culture and deaf society in our world right now. Um, everybody has a name, right? And like, my name's Dan, your name's Adam. Um, and until another member of the deaf community gives you your deaf name, whenever you're naming yourself to somebody, when you're introducing yourself, you spell out your name and sign until you get your quote unquote deaf name, which is given to you by a member of that community. Is it? What, what what is it? What is a deaf name like? Is so, it just like so, oh, your name is Robert now? No, so a deaf name uh, because uh, the language is of course signing. It it's given to you as a way to signify your personality and everything else in just a single sign, and it often can change within deaf society uh, within deaf society as well. Um, so like my son, his name's Connor, and his. Deaf name is a C that like chomps because for a long time, Connor just ate everything and just chewed on everything. Well, he's your so kid, Dan. He's, his legit deaf name was a C that chomped. Looked like Pac-Man, basically. Right? That's cool. Right? And, and it's stuff like that. So I've got my own deaf name. My, what is it? Uh, mine is the letter D up to your ear because I have gauged ears. Oh, gauged ears. That's yeah. really not where I thought you were going with that. Yeah. So, so well my done. name is Dan. It does start with a D, Adam. I'm not talking about, you know, other words that start with Boils. D. Boils. Boils. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That's really cool. I didn't know that about deaf society. That's, yeah. That's so, fun. And, and you don't get one until, and like, you can't make your own. No. Right? It's the same way in orc society as well. And the like, same way in orc society, deal. right? Like Also, my circle of friends. Everybody gets a nickname. Uh-oh. Yep. Yeah. Be afraid. <laughs> But like I, I just imagine like this one guy is like, man, I really want to be known as you know Elf Flare. So he just intentionally like waits until other orcs are looking at him before he starts flaying the elf at the battlefield. He's like, oh man, no one's around me. I'm just gonna wait to flay you. Stay there. Stay. Stay. All right. There's 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 Kruth. Okay. Starts flaying at that moment. Right? I really thought you said Elf Layer, and I'm like, these just laying elves. Just just laying elves like shingles on his roof. Yes. And, nope. Also an elf with shingles. Huh. Off. Given to him by a Yurtris orc. Yeah. Um, anyway, before this gets weirder, let's cut to a commercial. And then let's check in with everybody else and see what they've run across with uh, their reading and, and their research. Hey guys, Dan here, alone, in the Guildhouse, just letting you all know that now that the holidays, New Year's, and general BS that was 2020 is all wrapped up, we can finally move ahead and tackle 2021. Stronger, wiser, and with the grizzled determination of people who want something better in the world than what we have now. Well, with that determination, we figured we'd start the year off on a high note and announce our giveaway winner. Those of you who have been paying attention to the past few episodes or to our socials will know that we've been holding our biggest giveaway yet, and with a record amount of entries, we're glad to announce that user Onanimous off Instagram has won the grand prize that included a beholder, an owl bear, a set of wonderful dice, and the supreme master of the Nine Hells, Lord of Nessus and Lord of the Ruby Rod, Lord of Lies, Prince of Evil, and the old hoof and horn himself, Asmodeus, in all of his adorable Funko Pop glory. But an intimate giveaway wouldn't be complete without the main prize, in my humble opinion, responsibility. That's right, if you win one of our giveaways, you get the honor, nay, the privilege, of ripping the reins of subject matter out of ours and, well, let's be honest, Adam's hands, and puppet us like the marionettes we are to make us talk about whatever the hell, in D&D of course, you want to hear us talk about. 
Well, at Anonymous and their entire gaming group have decided that the cacophonous noise they want to hear about is none other than the big birds to our fantasy Sesame Street, the Eric Okra. So stay tuned to the channel as we ramp up to talk about these fantastic feathery fu uh, duck heads. And congrats again to Alex at Onanimous. Anyways, back to the show. Man, it feels weird doing these spots without Adam. Hmm. Oh, I know. Here's a bad pun. No, you're wrong, Dan. I like Batman. Doo-doo, poopy head, butt farts. Ah, that's better. Okay, so we're back, and there are lots of different kinds of gods in the Orc Pantheon, even more than 5th edition has focused on. But let's now focus to the Orcs who devote their lives to the service of specific gods. Once again, like the orcs we talked about in the last episode, every one of these horde members are medium humanoids. They're all chaotic evil, and they all have a movement speed of 30 feet. Typical medium humanoid stuff. I think Terry is still in the planning stages of his expedition in Greyhawk, but I understand that he has some info on the least fortunate horde member that we're discussing today. Let's shoot to Terry. Thanks again, Adam and Dan, for throwing it over to me. I'm still over here at the Green Dragon Inn just trying to get this adventuring party together. And let me tell you, with social distancing, trying to be a hands-on or an overly familiar team leader, as I've been called before, is not too easy. But less about my ongoing court case and more about the orc hand of Eurtris, not your uterus, as I wrongly said earlier, but was quickly corrected. So an orc hand of Eurtris, well, Eurtris is the orc god of death and disease, and I hope the internet is not screaming at me right now as I pronounce that incorrectly. Okay, a horrifying abomination covered in rot and infection, except for his perfect smooth white hands. This is what to expect from an orc hand of Eurtris. These are orc priests that oversee the line between life and death, and will typically um, be known for... Um, conducting rituals for orcs that have served their tribe well uh, to send them off to Grumsh's realm once they've died. And so for that reason, they're going to be very highly respected amongst the orc tribe. Um, something interesting about that is that makes the reward of eternal life uh, or how, how good your life is going to be after death um, somewhat subjective, right? It's up to the the opinions of others as to whether or not that goes ahead. I thought that was an interesting dynamic to play with and would probably cause quite a lot of pressure um, in orc life. But let's let's take a look at the stats of the orc hand of Eurtris and uh, we can get a little deeper into it. So medium humanoid orc, of course, chaotic evil. We're looking at a, a lower armor class here, armor class of 12. They wear hide armor. Um, hit points is going to be 4d8 plus 12. Standard speed, 30 feet. Looking at their stats here, constitution is going to be fairly strong. We expect that from orcs. A higher wisdom as well at 14. That's a plus two modifier. And we're looking at a fairly average strength, intelligence, and dexterity. Uh, their lowest stat coming in at nine with a, uh, a minus one modifier is going to be their charisma. Okay, so skills. Arcana, intimidation, medicine, religion. All makes sense there. Arcana, medicine, religion, definitely. Uh, and intimidation, sure, why not make sense with them being orcs and they're probably intimidating in their nature anyway, so it, it fits, that fits for me. Languages is interesting, understands common and orc, but can't speak. For senses, we're seeing dark vision, 60 feet, and the passive perception, 12. 
a lower challenge rating here of two. But I'm going to talk to you in a little bit about why you shouldn't be um, you shouldn't be thrown off by that and expecting that a combat with these uh, with the orc hands of, of your trust is going to be easy because it's not their role as a support role that I would use them is going to make them very challenging. Uh, definitely. Okay, they're aggressive as well. So as a bonus action, this orc can move up to its speed towards a hostile creature that it can see. For spellcasting, um, the orc hand of, of Yurtris is a fourth level spellcaster. Spellcasting ability is Wisdom. Spell save DC will be 12. For cantrips, Guidance, Mending, Resistance, Thaumaturgy. Okay, I don't really have an issue with any of those. But let's move move on to the other spells. Their first level spells, they get four slots. They get Bane, Detect Magic, Inflict Wounds, and Protection from Evil and Good. Bane, absolutely. Because I'm this person is at the back. They're terrifying. They're working a support role. And if you're concentrating Bane on your enemies, in this case the PCs, that fits perfectly fine for me. Bane, I think, is one of the most powerful first level spells that you can have in a combat situation. And as a PC on the receiving end of that, it is a nightmare. But that's because the spell is so good. But how about this? For second level, three slots, blindness, deafness, silence. This is why this particular orc is so good. Because silence has a radius on it. And it can cover most of your party. And if you're combating a mob of orcs, and now your spellcasting ability for verbal spells is being taken away from you, that is going to prove to be very challenging. Blindness, deafness as well, I think is overlooked a lot. If you use it strategically, it, it's, it's very strong. For the actions for this type of orc, so touch of the white hand, so melee weapon attack, plus three to hit, reach of five feet, it's one target, it's hit damage of 2d8, and it's necrotic damage. I think it fits just fine with what we're seeing here, but for, but what I want to talk about is how we would use an orc hand of Yurtris. They're silent, intimidating, maybe one or two at the back of the field, but you should be manipulating the battlefield with how you're causing, and I've said it before, the player characters or your enemy to constantly be on the back foot reacting to your bullshit on their turns. And this is how an orc hand of Yurtris can control the battle because their enemies, in this case the PCs, are not able to execute their plan because they're constantly reacting to what they are doing to them. That is how you have an effective combat strategy in D&D. But that's it for the Orc Hand of Yurtris. Adam and Dan, back to you. So the first takeaway I have is these guys, they can't speak, but they cast spells. Is this a vow of silence type thing, do you think? or And how does that affect their verbal components you know this has got to be a vow of silence like they have to be able to speak you you're not born as a uh as a hand of yurtris right yeah. so at some point you've got to just stop talking that makes these guys really really creepy especially with all of the white that they're gonna have mm -hmm. um like the the white ash that they would use to cover their hands and and I assume that they would have just white markings all over their face and some sort of tribal markings and shit as well, right? Yeah, I, I almost see them like because we've we've read that like the the those worshippers of Yurtris cover themselves in this ash. They're also harvesting bones all the time, so I assume they got bone piercings everywhere. Everywhere, but like, well, not everywhere. No, everywhere. Yikes! These guys are moving throughout the battlefield or, or wherever they go throughout the orc camp. And they are just a, I, I see a cloud of dust and ash 
pouring off of them, giving them this like ghastly, ghostly feel. I also see them like stepping out of the darkness after the battle is done, like the fog has set in, or you know, <laughs> nah, it's it's not even that. That that's not the level of creepy. I'm thinking about the um, the you look up and you just see like 15 orcs with like their pale faces from ash standing just just inside the tree line looking out waiting for the battle to be done so they can come harvest things it it's like that uh scene in it where like the boys are fighting by the creek and you just see it sitting in the in the reeds just and, like he waves yeah they're just waiting yeah they're gonna come in after you know how there'd be like battlefield nurses that would come in yeah not with not, not these guys no. No. no so um but yeah affecting the verbal components I would say that for them, verbal components would probably be not verbal, but auditory. So um, I would have them like popping noises with lips or even uh, clacking bones together or things, right? I like the idea maybe they have a uh, whistle or a, a pipe made of bone, like a pan flute made of bone. Yeah. And that's how they're communicating. Like, like a little flute? or Or something, or just like... Gives that creepy ambiance like uh, you see in the, these guys are voodoo is the way I feel about these guys. Yeah, but like the, the typical bombastic voodoo from yeah. like like 1940s adventure serials, right? Yeah. Like not true voodoo, but like scary um, horror horror level level of, stuff, yeah. right? Like constantly like clacking bones together. So, all right. The thing that I really took away from listening to Terry is that necrotic damage. At a CR2, that's pretty powerful because mm-hmm. nothing is going to be able to shrug that off. But is this really coming like coming into play at lower levels? Except against barbarians, right? Like, there's not a whole lot that's resistant at low levels. Azmir. That's pretty much barbarians or Azmir. That's that's what you got. Like, there are gonna be some odd, you know, cases here and there, but the difference between slashing damage and necrotic, while flavorful. Doesn't matter a fuck of a lot until you start to hit mid-tier 2, right? This is one of the reasons why I really encourage DMs to play into the favor or into the flavor as much as they possibly can. Because if your low-level party comes across one of these guys, you shouldn't be getting close enough to him to get that necrotic damage. Yeah, additionally, on top of that, you should not be running into one of these guys by themselves. And that's kind of the other thing to think about is, yes, he's CR2, but he's probably got six other orcs and an eye of groomsh. And like, there are more, there's a couple of, uh, of orocs in the mix. Like you're not running into any of the specialized versions of orcs that we're going to talk about today. You're not running into them by accident or on their own wandering through the woods, right? These guys are part of the horde. You, it, like I, I said at the beginning, most people don't realize that there's anything beyond Groomsh and Ilnival and Bogtrue. Oh, even that's excessive. Yeah, because you don't get behind the first wave, right? No. So you are deep in enemy territory, which means, yeah, it's CR2, but they're probably part of a CR7 encounter. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to move on from Terry and his legal woes now and move on to the ha- the fact that the hand of Yurtris is only one part of Yurtris's diseased pie. That's disgusting. You're welcome. Tell me more about your disease pie. No, it's not mine. It's your choices. Gross. Yeah. At first glance, it seems awfully weird that there are spellcasting orcs with a focus on mending, guidance, and protection from evil and good. An orc horde isn't exactly known for being gentle, so what gives? 
Well, it turns out they act as a tenant and support for our next mob member. Mail slave Brad has dug up some details in the most famous tavern in Waterdeep, so let's check in with him and see what he knows. Thanks, guys. Hello, friends and fellow adventurers. Brad here, checking in once again from the awning portal here in Waterdeep. I've been speaking with adventurers passing through the tavern here, and have heard some fantastic stories. I've heard some chilling tales as well. One tale stands out in my mind due to the horrific nature of the creatures involved. Let me tell you about the orc-nurtured one of your truce. These are some truly horrific creatures. Orc-nurtured ones of your truce are diseased and pestilent creatures. Your truce is the orc god of death and disease. When a plague sweeps through the orc camp, it takes a serious toll. While many die, there are some who do not. However, they are not always able to be cured. The priests of your truce, also known as hands of your truce, isolate the sick. The survivors who they cannot cure are tuned in to weapons of war used to defend the tribe. When battle breaks out, it is common for nurtured ones of your truce to be sent into the head of battle to sacrifice themselves and spread the disgusting blessing of your truce to the enemy. These creatures are a horror to look upon, resembling an orc covered in pustules and cysts, glowing in a bright greenish color. The sight of such a creature may cause even the most seasoned adventurer to question whether or not that's where they want to be. Orc nurtured ones of your truce have a very low CR of only a half and an AC of only 9. They have a decent health pool though for their challenge rating. They're still orcs which means they have a movement speed of 30 feet, dark vision, and they speak common and orc. Like their kin, they have the aggressive feature which means that they can move up to their speed as a bonus action. Their diseased nature gives them the ability called Corrupted Carrier. When an orc nurtured one of your truce is killed, it explodes in a spray of pus and disease. Any creature within 10 feet will have to make a DC 13 constitution saving throw and takes 46 damage on a failure or half of that on a success. A failure will also leave you with the poison condition. If you are poisoned by this effect, you cannot regain hit points by any means. You are allowed to save against this effect at the end of every one of your turns. Also, due to their diseased nature, orc nurtured ones of your truce have advantage on saving throws against poison and disease, which as we all know, are two of Adam's favorite conditions. As an action, the orc nurtured one of your truce can either make a claw attack dealing slashing and necrotic damage, or alternatively and much more horrifyingly, the orc can elect to effectively self-destruct, reducing itself to zero hit points and triggering the corrupted carrier ability. I don't know about you, but if I ever see one of these things, or worse, a swarm of these things heading my way, I'm keeping my distance. I don't want to see these creatures within a hundred feet of me. As a DM, I love the idea of sending a few waves of these guys at a party. Their low AC but decent health pool will have your party scrambling to keep themselves at range using AoE spells or multi-attack ranged attacks to keep these monsters at bay. Let me know how or if you would use these monsters, or if you've dealt with them in the past. I'd love to hear your stories. You can find me at Clueless Game Master on Instagram or reach out on the subreddit. Best of luck adventures, until next time, Godspeed. Back to you in the guildhouse, Adam and Dan. So they're essentially suicide bombers in the name of their god, right? These mm-hmm. are nasty bastards that are a brutal surprise for party members. You go up against orcs. You are not expecting to get suicide bombed. Yeah. Can you imagine waves of these guys? Yeah, absolutely. This is going to take your tier three party down to their knees. Yep. Right? Now, 4d6 doesn't feel like a whole lot, but when it happens over and over and over, three or four waves of these guys, Brad's right. You want your AOE spells, you want your ranged attacks, because you don't want these things getting close, mm-hmm. but holy shit. Yeah. No, it, it, it could be pretty, pretty dang brutal. And I mean, 
you may have resistance to uh, necrotic because I mean by tier three you have resistances to access to them all. It's not going to matter even if you're taking half damage. These things are going to annihilate you if you give them the time. The poor squishy spellcasters. Yeah. Now with the aggressive trait on top of all this. And the ability to trigger its own 46 splash damage attack. These guys can hit enemies 70 feet away from where they start with 14 poison damage. On, On average. average. Yeah, that's that's crazy. 70 feet. Because it's a bonus action to trigger this thing to blow up, right? So they get their dash and then they hit people 10 feet away from where they are, right? Yeah, so, so they, they move, they dash, they do this thing. Now, if this is a named guy with an auroch, <laughs> you're all screwed. Yeah, right? Like there's... There's a lot of crazy shit. Again, and they have... Um, uh, do these guys have the aggressive trait? Yeah. yeah. Right? So this... They're covering land quickly. They are coming at you. And you may see... And you can tell them, oh, about 200 feet away, you can see a whole bunch of uh, orcs covered in post, uh, postules and or pustules and gross boils and... and you can see them like dripping, poisonous uh, looking foul, uh, like liquids out of their pores and shit. As these things come slaving forward, they're going to think, oh, it's some sort of zombie or not. But these things are fast. These are your rage zombies. The thing I love the most about these things is you saw that the with the hands of Yurtris, they were silent and careful and methodical. These guys are not silent. And they're the first wave. Yeah. Right? I... I see you hearing and maybe smelling these guys before you see them, right? They're they're covered in boils. They're diseased to the bone and sometimes further, right? They're going to be screaming and bellowing as they charge towards you. Yeah, and I see these guys as being part of a larger mob. Oh, yeah. Right? They're not necessarily standalone bad guys, but, I mean, you could use them as a trap here and there, if the players have never seen one before. <laughs> Come up on a road and just there's this one, like, wreathing pustule in well, the you, middle of a road. I don't think you're going to run into these guys. Again, you don't know these things exist. The average person mm -hmm. doesn't. You're going to find this inside the tunnels in an underground lair where they go, Hey, you know what? There are a bunch of intruders down that way. We're going to let Steve the Orc who's covered in freaking herpes, go off that way and explode, just rub all up and down those uh, adventures, right? And he's going to go there and he's going to hit the first two because 10 feet, right, yeah. in a narrow tunnel. He's going to hit two people for this poison damage and it's going to shock them, right? They're not going to see this shit coming. But I also see like if you are tracking an orc horde, I could see them using these guys as bombs to slow you down. Mines to yep. slow you down if you're following them and they know about it. So one of the things that I think is interesting about these guys as well is I would definitely have these guys be hyper-religious because to die in a bed is not the orc way. The ability to become a nurtured one of Yertris has got to be your last-ditch effort to get into Groomsh's good side. Yeah, right. So I can picture these guys just like in just total pain. And, and desperate in more than one way. Yeah. So they're going to go explode from a religious standpoint on this. Yeah. So it doesn't exactly feel like the nurtured ones would be known for their subtlety. But, I mean, we see orcs, our raiders, barbarians, out, outlanders, and nomads. It's about damn time we saw some stealth from the mob. 
After all, they're raiders, sure, but they know how to hunt and track wild animals. I mean, even Conan the Barbarian did more sneaking than rampaging, so it fits thematically. So let's jump over to a new voice, James, who's currently digging around in a mystical library deep in the Underdark. It's got some stone giant librarians and ghostly apparitions of previous patrons whose essences reverberate through time and haunt the stacks of books and scrolls. James has been a part of our behind-the-scenes crew for a while now, and he was part of the team that got our YouTube channel up and running. For those of you who are patient, he's going to appear on a future episode of our Call of Cthulhu series. But for now, let's see what he has for us. Thank you, Dan and Adam. I'll be telling you guys more about the Orc Red Fang of Shargas. Shargas is a deity of the Orc people who represents darkness and sneakiness. A god who hates all life that isn't Orc. The weaklings and the pariahs of Orc society, those unfit to live with the tribe, are the ones who crawl to him in the dark. Though exiles in the eyes of the rest of the tribe, their elites are put to work as assassins or thieves in times of need of the Horde. Orc Red Fang of Sargas has an AC of 15, 52 hit points, and a speed of 30 feet. Its strength is average, dex fairly strong, con as well fairly strong, intelligence average, wisdom, and charisma are all average. With a bonus to intimidation, perception, and stealth, which all makes sense for the role that they fulfill within their society, as well as a dark vision out to 60 feet and a fairly strong passive perception, rounding them out to a CR of about 3. With the cutting action ability allowing them to use disengage, dash, or the hide action, all with a bonus action, it makes them formidable opponents. They also have the Hand of Shargas, which gives the orc the ability to take two extra damage die for any weapon attack. With the Trace Shargas Sight, magical darkness is no longer going to affect this creature. The Slayer trait also gives them an advantage in the first round of combat if they get to take their turn before another creature. If they do, it becomes an automatic critical hit on a successful hit. With its actions, it has the multi-attack ability to take two separate weapon attacks, either a scimitar attack for 3d6 plus 3, or a ranged dart for 3d4 plus 3. They also have the Vigil of Shargas, which allows them to cast darkness without material components. Wisdom is the spell saving ability. One or two of these creatures getting a jump on a party may put them into a massive world of hurt. But even low level parties with high perception shouldn't have a major issue fighting one or two of these. That'll be all for me for now. From the Stone Library of Graven Hollow, this is James, signing out. Back to you, Adam and Dan. So the Veil of Shargas ability really strikes home with the idea that this creature is a stealthy assassin of the shadows. 
It's unfortunate that this ability only resets after a short or long rest, but it feels like it's meant to be combined with the fact that the Red Fang of Shargas can see in magical darkness and does crazy amounts of damage with its first attack. This here is an ambusher. Absolutely. It is setting up darkness so that your guys are going to walk in and when their torches don't peer through it and the elves can't see through it and all that crazy stupid shit that, you know... All but two classes in the game can see through? Or two races in the game can see yeah, through? Yeah, pretty much, right? And all of a sudden they're in the dark circle. Oh, something's fucky here. And they're looking around and the, there is something fucky going on. Here, yeah. Right. Um, especially when combining a handful of these guys in the darkness, this can act as an incredible hit squad against even like tier three PCs. You can have... Three or four of these guys come out of the darkness, like, and they can see just fine, and nobody else can, and they're just going to come out of nowhere silently, stealthy, creeping out, and hit the guy in front four times, and then fucking disappear again into the darkness, right? I would love to do this for a uh, warlock patron that has the ability to even see through magical darkness. Because you have your super squishy warlock sitting there witnessing orcs coming through and murdering all of his party members. And I would have it so it's somehow tied in with his warlock patron. Maybe this guy had just like gone against his patron for whatever reason. So they like shank one of the beloved NPCs or the paladin or whoever is in the front of the party. And then all four of them make eye contact with the warlock. Raise a finger to their lips. Go shh. And then back And then slowly. back away. <laughs> like, just mess with the warlock on this one. I like the idea of saying, okay, you enter the magical darkness. What's your AC? Yeah. Right? And the guy in front's like, well, I'm sorry, fucking what? <laughs> right? Uh, well, hold on. I'm a, I'm a rogue, so I don't take damage from dexterity shit. If I- that you can see, motherfucker. Well, well yeah, <laughs> that's a big part of it, too. But, like... There are a lot of ways around taking damage, but no, these guys can just come out of nowhere with maces and just freaking club you over the head. Oh, yeah. I I, I would love to use this. Uh, just as an aside, I would love to use this as Terry, who invented the black bomb. Oh, yeah. Right. Which, which is his signature move. His signature one move. One person drops darkness, another one drops a fireball. Yeah, right. So I would love to see this played on Terry just to see him. Okay, you walk into magic darkness and his just... A spider sense flare up. It's just like, ah, oh, fuck. Speaking of spider, hold on. I'm thinking now about, about vertical movement one up and down walls. They would totally do this near a precipice. Wait for people to get close. Oh. Grapple and, and move and let go. And they're orcs. They're big and beefy. They could do it. Yep. They've got the ability to sneak. I really, really like this for a way to separate the party or to drop your, your, Glass cannon, right? The the wizard that does a lot of damage output but needs to be able to target it. Eat him off a cliff first. Or or just stab him nine fucking times <laughs> and let him go down. And then when the magical dropness or magical dark darkness drops, there you go. Magical drop is when you eat him off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. That's I cast catapult, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> that happily goes. Yeah! <laughs> so But um no, when when you drop the magical darkness and you just find that there are footprints in the dust and the sorcerer is bleeding out face down on the ground, right? That's a lot of fucking fun. Use this sparingly. If you 
don't have a really good relationship. Yeah. yeah, but if you don't have a good relationship with your players as well, they're going to feel targeted when you drop magical darkness on them, assassinate one character, and fuck off. Well, the other thing that you have to remember, too, is that these guys are in the depths, right, beyond the war, uh, the war chief's lair, beyond even Yurtris, right? Like, yeah. it's deep in the dark pits of the orc lair underground so you're gonna hit that red stone that jagged red stone and everyone's gonna be walking up to it and like oh what does this mean and that one orc they took you know because they always leave one alive fuck 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 they, fuck, they fuck, hobble fuck, them right and drag them along because every party's murder hobos yep and they're like oh what what does this mean what's down there and he's like not even we go down there man i have no idea there's something there in the darkness those those guys, they're fucking crazy, right? <laughs> and so, and the, and the party was gonna look at each other and be like, "Do we do we risk it? Should we go?" Uh, and of course, one of them will say yes. And I mean, why not? Go. We got to take out the orcs, anyways, exactly, right? Exactly, right? We don't know if that's where our MacGuffin is. It's really interesting to me that we're getting a lot of societal flavor outside of things like rank or file, or rank or title. Priests, dying orcs, sneaky assassins. I've been waiting for some sluggers that can stand shoulder to shoulder with the eyes of Grooms, the Orogs, and the War Chiefs. It makes sense with orc society that if an orc was particularly strong or a fierce warrior, then they'd be up for the position of the leader. But it seems weird that we haven't seen more of these big, strong orcs. Well, Megan brings us the closest we're going to get with the entries from Volos, with the Blade of Ilnable. But even with its solid place on the battlefield, the 8d8 plus 24 hit points feels a little lacking, especially because they don't get much more than the standard kinds of orc traits, like dark vision, 30 foot of movement, and aggressive. As Megan knows, these guys have strong armor class, but the lore says these guys lead the charge, so you know that they're going to be a focus of attacks in round one of initiative. So, uh, you know what? Let's let Megan tell us what's going on. Thanks, Dan Adam. So, yeah, Megan here. Again, still in Barovia. I feel like I haven't seen the sun in, like, a week. I feel like I'm developing dark vision. I feel like I'm actually better than a dragonborn at this point. So, um, kudos to me. All right, so I've come across some more readings. So let me hit you with a quick history lesson. So, of course, when you think orcs, you consider Grumch. Like, I hate that name. I hate how it's spelled. I hate how it sounds. But that's just me. But Grumsh needed a right-hand man, um, basically to control his armies, and that man was Ilnaville. Um, it was this orc's job to actually ensure every battle came out with a W, you know? Like, he made sure, like, heads rolled and, like, blood was spilt. Um, but, of course, in the most tactical of ways. He knew the ins and outs of basically every battlefield and how to dominate any opponent, whether it was, like, in single combat, battlefield tactics, or what have you. Um, so with this in an orc horde... Um, there will rise a more strategic war maker. Um, and so basically to paint some imagery, it's usually a blood covered, gross sword that's drenched with the blood of the enemies, like that whole nine yards. So if you're thinking creepy, like horror movie style orc, this is kind of the look that they're going for. Uh, so to get into some details on this special breed, uh, with a challenge rating of four, these are kind of a different monster to tackle. So they're like any other good fighter. They have a good high strength and con. However, what makes them different is they do have an above average wisdom score and an actually a higher charisma score, which I think plays really into that battle master tactician feel very well and are proficient in like um, perception, insight, and what I love, intimidation. 
So I just love it when they use skills as proficiencies, um, sorry, or um, abilities, of something a little bit more flavor to them, right? Um, gives them a rhyme or reason for existing. So you can't really fool these guys and they will scare the shit out of you. So I feel like if you saw the, one of these on a battlefield, you would want to run in the other direction, even though they do have a lower challenge rating than a few of the other orc breeds. Um, but the thing about these things is that they do really play into more of a commander role when on the battlefield. So if you're thinking mob mentality and you want to have a bunch of orcs out on a battlefield, having one of these would not be uncommon. Um, I feel like having one of these would almost be necessary depending on the scenario of what's going on within your campaign. But these guys are the ones that are going to be controlling what's going on with those orcs um, and, and just like really commanding that battlefield. So they have an ability that's called the Ilnaville's Command. So this makes them call out basically to three of their orc subordinates, which lets them use a reaction to make an attack. So it's very commanding when on the battlefield telling what orcs to go and go where and do whatever they want to do, right? So, um, and it does say any weapon attack. So I'm assuming that even if they were at a distance, they could throw a javelin. So you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on that one, but... It's pretty cool a way to kind of keep the battlefield under control if you're the DM. And I feel like if your team saw one of these on the battlefield giving commands at orcs, they would be they would know that this is the leader. And if they wanted to capture someone for questioning, it's almost like this is the person you would attempt to do that with, even though it would be a very hard feat to do. So personally, I, I'm really interested in these guys just in the sense where they do feel like they give off a different energy than most orcs would, as I feel like they would be more under control than your more traditional orc. Um, so weirdly enough, I would want to make an ally out of one of these guys. So if I was to actually build a campaign, I would want to have an NPC um, that is the leader of an orc army that is one of these guys. Um, it could be an evil campaign to make it easier to fit into that um, chaotic, neutral, evil kind of feel of that orcs give off. But I, I don't know, I love playing into the idea that you can play opposites of characters or situations, have them turn to be on your side and become an ally for you. Um, and have the own little arc orc army that's kind of assisting you um, in battle and in fact will sometimes order you around if it forgets that it's not in command of its own army. Um, I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of different flavorful ways to use these guys. But, uh, but yeah, uh, oh, oh my gosh, what's that? Is it? Is that the sun? No, that's impossible. I just, okay, sorry, but guys, I, I've got to go. Um, check this out. So I'm going to go and throw it back to you. Uh, let me know what you think about having these gents on the battlefields and whose side would you want to be on? All right, I'll, I'll be back. Bye. All right, so Ilnival's command is actually pretty fucking deadly considering it recharges on a four to six. Yikes. Not even Dragon Breath does. No, the fact that it can be used as part of the multi-attack is crazy too. Just think, it gets two long sword or javelin attacks each with an additional damage die because Ilnival gives them that on all weapon attacks and then all of its allies within 120 feet can immediately use their reaction to attack. And yes, Megan, you're absolutely right. You can use javelins for this reaction because it doesn't say melee. It's just weapon attack. That's nuts. So yeah, and you think about and it recharges on 4 to 6. You have to 50-50 of doing this again next round. I would, as much as these guys are meant to be in the front row, keeping them in the back with guys hucking, well, hucking javelins, right? Up on a stone wall, right? Or, or there's some sort of physical barrier. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't need a bow and arrow when your arrow is the size of a tree trunk and you could fire them at the same rate. Well, and it's, <laughs> gravity is your, is your best friend, right? Yeah. 
Remember, though, there's there's a bit of a sneaky trade-off buried in the text here. Their longsword attack does say that they could do the damage with D8s or D10s if they use two hands, but their AC of 18 would have to drop if they use those D10s because two points of that armor class is from a shield. So yep. if they're using two hands, they, they can't be using that shield. Okay? I mean, 8D8 plus 24 hit points is pretty solid, especially in Tier 2, Tier 3. It's not as solid as the other orcs, though. Like, it sits kind of middle of the pack, considering no. these guys are front. I mean, it's you're right. It's not game-breaking. It's up to you about whether or not you want to sacrifice AC for damage on these guys. This is why it's so important to understand where your monster's AC and HP come from. You know that plus 24 I mentioned earlier when I was talking about their HP? That's because they have a plus 3 to con and 8 hit dice. 8 times 3 is 24. Yeah. Almost every single monster stat block works that way. So now you as a DM know how to impact a creature's maximum hit points if their constitution score is ever reduced mid-combat or something. Understanding how the AC is built also gets you to start thinking about things on how to adjust AC on the fly when an NPC or enemy picks up a shield to defend itself mid-battle, or, as I like to do, how to describe the battle as well, depending on where in that AC you hit with that roll. Yeah, I honestly, anything five or below is an auto miss, but there's a lot of parrying, catching it with the shield, yeah. glancing off the shoulder pad, that kind of shit. Yeah, right? I go like 10 or lower, you just miss him. He didn't even have to move. Then I consider dexterity, right? Yeah. And if, if yeah, you he hit, dodges out of the way, if you get that, thing. you know, 13, 12, whatever their dexterity, they dodge or they parry. Anything above that is armor, right? So it reflects off their armor or they parry it or they get it off the shield. Anything after that, you hit them and they take damage because, owie, you hit them. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of how I think about that as well. Yeah, no, that look, that makes a lot of sense. Being able to reverse engineer armor class and hit points is so important. Yeah. And I mean, there's even a chart on your DM screen that could help with this. Adam didn't know I was going to say this, but I'm, I'm saying it. It is the uh, damage by level chart. It's on everyone's DM screen if you have the base standard DM screen. And it uh, it feels a little low powered based off the levels, but it goes off tiers like we do here. Tier one is a certain amount, tier two is a certain amount, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have to make up damage on the spot, this helps you because you could be like, well, my party's tier four and this guy's using this weapon I didn't know existed up until 10 minutes ago. I could use this chart. It's on your DM screen. Yeah. I don't often get surprised, but you know me. I'm a big you, prepper. You're right? a big prepper. I often do get surprised because I I improvise myself into corners often. Yeah. I sit there and I look at what the expected average damage per round is, and I will actually change weapons as a result. Yeah. Like, these three guys have scimitars, but that guy's got a fucking great sword, so that guy first. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, the last orc we have today is the most maternal, I guess. I well, mean, I mean, quote-unquote. Yeah, as maternal as an orc is going to get. We talked last episode about orogs, but there's another kind of orc that is implied to work closely with them. But there's no real information about how these members actually interact. I can't imagine that they're necessarily sitting around drinking tea together and shooting the shit. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. So anyways, let's just jump over to Dave, who tells us that he recently dug up some information on them, presumably while he was getting his weekly manicure. 
Hey guys, uh, I'm still sitting in the Roarholds in Aberon, and I've been doing some more digging into these orcs on my quest to learn more about the Draconic Prophecy, and and I came across this really interesting kind of orc, and it, they're called the Orc Claw of Luthic. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar or not, but Luthic is Groomsh's wife. Now, in order to be an Orc Claw of Luthic, you need to be a female orc, okay? These are the, the orcs that are kind of left behind at the stronghold to maintain things and uh, and keep things running while the war bands are out and raiding and so on. So uh, the first thing you need to know about them is that they often grow their nails long and sharp and pointy and they, they lacquer them over really good so they, they paint their nails. It's a very interesting way that they they make themselves appear. It's, it's different than the rest. Now these are some of Luthic's most powerful followers and because of that, they are actually able to use some of her magic to cast spells. Uh, now again, like I said, they're charged with the daily ins and outs of maintaining an orc stronghold. They're the ones that are going to raise the young, uh, make sure that the whelps aren't messed with, and making sure everything is working well and running efficiently in the, the camp or stronghold, whatever you want to call it. Their AC is reasonable. It's about 14. They got uh, a fair amount of hit points at... Uh, 68 plus 18 and their speed is pretty standard you know 30 feet their strength and dex and con uh, and wisdom are all above average they're quite good and the intelligence charisma is average so these are not your stupid average orcs they're above average they're they're quite powerful in fact they're a cr2 uh, for skills, they get Intimidation, Medicine, and Survival. Uh, their Dark Vision's pretty good, 60 feet. They get the Aggressive feature, like a regular Orc does, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with by now. But in addition to that, they also get Spellcasting. This kind of Orc, in particular, is a 5th level Spellcaster, and it has the following Cleric spells prepared. For Cantrips, it gets Guidance, Mending, Resistance, and Thaumaturgy. Uh, for 1st level, it gets Bane, Cure Wounds, and Guiding Bolt. 2nd level is Augury and Warding Bond. And third level is Bestow Curse, Create Food and Water. Now, they get their Claw Attack, which uh, they can use as a multi-attack for two hits. Or, they can actually make four Claw Attacks if they have fewer than half of their hit points remaining. These things are really cool. Now, I can see these creatures being more of like a stay-at-home defender. If you have a party of adventurers that's looking to make peace with an Orc Warband, maybe you're not going for the Orc Warband. Maybe you're not trying to talk to them. Maybe you're trying to go and talk to the Orc Claw of Luthic. If you can convince them that it's in their best interest to make peace or maybe move on or whatever, you know, this could be an interesting backdoor to circumnavigate a full-on battle with an Orc Horde. In addition, I like the idea of these guys being used as part of the Horde in an all-out, like, good versus evil battle, and these are like your frenzied berserkers, where when they get down to half their life, they get that extra little boost where they can make two additional hits for four, uh, four attacks, which, for a CR2, can be pretty powerful, alright? Uh, but anyways, guys, that's all I got on these. I gotta keep going. I got so much more research to do, so Adam, Dan, back to you. Okay, so when I'm looking at the seemingly impressive ability it has with all the extra attacks, it's clear to me that I'm rarely going to get this off. With an AC of only 14 and an average hit points of 45, this only leads me with a 22-point window of getting this claw attack out. And considering that the multi-attack only does 1d8 plus 2 damage, and I have a measly plus 4 to hit, I'm not going to be doing much more than 18 or so damage on average. Yeah, and I mean, at this level, it feels good, but when you're running into hordes, 
That's not a lot. Your guys have got like 80 hit points, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's why these things are probably going to be a little bit more numerous than your average Orog, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, by the time that they come into battle, look, here's the thing. I I, want to have these guys come in waves or be in the back so that they're not taking all of the damage up front. So they can get whittled away when you've already blown through your high level spells. Well, if if they, you're completely right. I completely agree with you because if they only get the one round, because its AC and hit points are so low, it's only going to get that one round if it's attacking first. Burying it behind a little bit of a meat shield would be a good idea because yeah, it's flashy. But I know that most parties are going to hit hard at the special mobs that are on the field, and they'll hit them frequently. So this is a moderately effective mob member that isn't as useful as it first appears. So hide it. Surprise your party with it. Yeah. The other thing about this that I actually really like, you're right. This is not nearly as powerful as it reads on paper. And you're not going to get this flashy shit off. No. You just aren't. But, Dan, think back to 4th edition. How Do good, I have to? Yeah. How good was the bloodied <sighs> condition? One of the three things from 4th edition I still take away. That yeah, are, that are brilliant. So for those of you that don't know, the bloody condition is that when an enemy or a PC, when anybody gets to half hit points, they're considered bloodied and a lot of creatures react um, to essentially smelling blood in the water like a shark does, yeah. right? So it changes immediately the way that the battle layout works. And I think they had another level of it too when you hit like a tenth of your hit, but there was something else further down, right? I don't think so. so. No, sometimes there were for okay. some... For some creatures, um, once they get down to this level, they go into a frenzy or they get into a whatever it is, right? So, um, honestly, this is like the nurtured one of Yertris and the Red Fang of Shargas for me. Like, I'm designing the entire encounter around protecting the signature move so that I can get it off. Whether it's darkness right at at the beginning and with all those attacks, um, like to to surprise the party or the nurtured one that's going to blow up when they hit them. So I'm putting a, a couple of Aurochs in front of them, leading the charge just to soak up damage sure. so that the nurtured ones can get there quickly. Like I, I'm designing the whole encounter around these creatures, especially the first time or two that we see them. And I got to put minions between them and the party so that these guys can get in there and actually fuck somebody up a little bit. Everyone can go, oh, wow, this person's scary. And, the fighters like, oh, guys, 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 over here! I need help, yeah, right? Like, right. and that's yeah. that's what you're looking for. I mean, if they got 80 hit points and this thing's doing around 20, and you have five of them, sure, yeah, that's super deadly. Assuming that you get them all off, and remember, they're not doing all four attacks because what are the odds that five of these guys are below half of their hit yeah, points, right? Right, because when you're at level eight, you're hitting. You're doing more than whatever the 45 damage in a round anyway, right? Oh, yeah. You're hitting with some decently powered spells. Unless you're an idiot and playing in uh, against the uh, action economy and your party's just like each person has picked a target. I see that a lot. I also see I'm going to spread my magic missiles out among those three targets. What the fuck are you doing? We talked in episode 100 about focus on one mob monster and, and then drop move. them. Yeah. Right. Everybody hit that guy and then that guy and then that guy. Put them in a death spiral because me as a DM, I am directly trying to counter that. Yeah. Now, if I run into these guys in some sort of published adventure or, or you know, some little module I found on the internet and I see this in here, 
Um, I may play uh, play this a little bit dumb, depending on how difficult or yeah. or even how inexperienced my party is, right? So if your guys are tactically inexperienced, let's say, all right, I, I put it nicely. Yeah. If, if if you're not surrounded by a bunch of um, ta- tacticians and strategists around the table, maybe don't hit them this hard. But for the most part, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to design meat shields to go in front of them. You know, there's going to be two of these guys protecting the the whelping pen mm-hmm. while the Tanneruk runs amok in front of them, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, sure, I'm going to go take out the quote-unquote minions. You're in for a goddamn surprise, <laughs> right? Because it's going to be the monk that goes in there and does, you know, I'm going to hit four times, but for six each time, I'm going to miss twice. These guys are meant to take out monks and rogues and, yeah. and sorcerers, Blenders. warlocks, right? Yeah. So um, they're not going to be able to go toe-to-toe with things like wizards dropping their signature spell, barbarians, fighters with three attacks, shit like that, right? Yeah. Anyways, we just want to say thanks to everybody who helped us out on this episode. We miss having you guys here with us, and we hope everyone is staying safe and happy out there. Yeah, and I'm going to use this opportunity to just remind everyone that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. You can always reach out to us through our email at info at itsamimic.com because we love hearing from you guys. And any questions that you send us will get added to the lists for our upcoming mailbag episodes. So please reach out and let us know. It's just Dan and I in the fucking guild house these days and yep. it's it's a little lonely and he keeps trying to cuddle me for warmth. I get cold at night, Adam. It's your boil that freaks me out. My boil. Your boil. It's a little bit boy and a little bit girl. It's a boil. <laughs> oh, boil rules. Anyway, let's uh, let's pick up our dice and talk for a little bit about how our mob structure changes now with these specialized. This is going to be a constant thing every time that we get a two or three part episode yeah. when dealing with the mob. Where the, at first glance, orcs and war chiefs and shit seems pretty straightforward. We have kind of a leadership structure, but now we've got we've got a society. There's a civilization here. Yeah. Let's, let's grab our dice and. and Talk about that a little bit. I got a 13. I got a 10. So are there any implications from these breakdowns that we just talked about with the others? Are there ideas on social structures that you want to talk about using these guys specifically or how they may interact with Orogs? And- I'm, I mean, I, I see like the the um, Blades of Innovol are being heavily... Um, associated with your eyes of room, with your war chiefs, with like the strategists, they're up there to yeah, and, try to figure. And they'll stuff be out. the ones that are on the front lines, right? Yeah. Um, and all of the ones with Yurtris, all the ones with Sargas, like they are. Even Luthic, they're they're back they're home. back home, right? Like I don't, other than maybe the nurtured ones, you're not going to encounter a lot of these guys in a f- battlefield. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, this is also where I see Orogs like staying back, right? Yeah. yeah. When when all of these, um, when all of Bog True's young uh, fighters want to get out there and they want to go raid, and you've got the eyes of Groomch and orcs, the standard orcs. There's a war chief, you know, barking orders, and there's all of this shit going on. I really picture the Orogs sitting back with the, where the Claw of Luthic is is there with the whelping pens, and mm-hmm. they've got the cave bears to help them. And you've got the the Orogs kind of watching the front gates. Yep. Right? Um, It's funny how little Orogs were mentioned in Volos. 
Because in the Monster Man, it's a bit weird. Yeah, they're really built up to be a major part of this community, and then in Volos, they're nearly ignored. I, I think it's because they're 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 supposed to be few and far between. In, they in, are right. I mean, they each individual one has a massive impact, but it's they're still like few and far between in the tribe, especially since they represent the highest tier of these Luthic. Yeah. Uh, followers, right? And if you're going to have anyone that kind of challenges the war chief and Groomsh for position, it might be an Orog. So, like, let's. But but they won't even, right? Because they're very closely tied to Luthic, according yeah. to the Monster Manual. Yeah. Right. And um, and if they're staying back, they're not being the ferocious, battle hardened warrior that you expect to see from the regular orcs. Even they're right? they're they're angry. They're, they're angry cave moms. Yeah, but they're also hyper intelligent compared to the rest of the orcs. That's true too. Yeah. Right, so they're they're going to be the ones that are organizing the um, the retreat out the out the back tunnels and shit as well. If it ever comes to that, I think they're the ones that are also running a lot of the defense. A lot like there, there's definitely an orog inside of the uh, like war council meetings. Yeah, it's going to be the one orog that oversees the prisoners. Right or that is is in charge of making sure that the war wagon is well stocked and yeah. like shit like that and 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 like I, I just I just see this like war council happening inside of like the war chief's tent and you know he talks to the eye of groom she talks to the blade of Ilnival. he goes over and like talks to the uh, Bogtru um, representative at, uh, at the table it's weird uh, to know, me it, it's weird to me that there is no Bogtru. Special orc? Well, it's funny because it's just every orc leans on that yeah. until they find their place in the horde. I guess that's true. Yeah. So. Um, but like, I see him doing that and then they're like, okay, guys, <sighs> Den Mother, what do you got for us? But, right. But the Den Mother's a claw of Luthic, right? The Orog is, is tangential to that, works with the claw of Luthic. Yeah. But like, there's no real space in the horde, as far as Volos goes, for the Orog, which is really strange to me. Yeah. I will say that I believe because of the intelligence level, the Orog is going to be the one that turns to the war chief and says, hey, look, we're kind of fucked. The dwarves have shown up in the east. The elves and humans have rallied in the west. We're straight between them. And I know you can't retreat or they're going to just steal you in the middle of the night and fucking eat your face. So before the Red Fang of Shargas comes for you, go to them. Send them out to assassinate some enemy leaders. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I know that this is not the right way to do it. Groomsh isn't thrilled about this. But if you want to live another day, this is how you do it. And so I see them seeing the big picture as well. Yeah, and having I get that, the yeah. ear, right? Um and it might be the Orogs as well that go down to the Red Fang or the the um the white hand of uh Yertris. of Yertris. And like they may go to these different these different people that are on the outskirts of the society and say, hey, you know what? We need you to do a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just the the war chief sends the Orog down to talk to the, the, the creepy assholes in the diseased pits. If you're gonna have a little finger and uh and you know anything like that with your war council, it's gonna be the aura, the biggest one, right? The biggest, beefiest, scariest looking orc is going to be the smartest. Which is a little bit strange. And mm -hmm. I like that. Now, before we jump into encounter structures, has your opinion on orcs changed since we've done these two episodes? Like, 
have you learned anything new that really sticks out? Are you going to use them differently moving forward? Am I going to use them differently? No. Um, <laughs> just Why no. do we even do these episodes? Well, there's a reason. Because I love orcs, I won't use them differently because I already use them to their fullest, right? I might have my party actually attack a more fully fleshed storm uh, stronghold. Sure. But, like, it, it's... I, I, I love orcs. Yes, I did learn a couple new things here. Um, but Specifically like, for, like, Forgotten Realms lore. For right? Just mostly for the Forgotten Realms lore. Um, and it's it's great to build more into it. But, man, like, I, I we said at the beginning of the episode, yes, I use orcs all the time for big bads. This just reinforces that, right? I now have a more fleshed out war chief. That is a big bad villain level threat. Yeah, I'm far more willing to use orcs now. As tier two and even tier three bad guys. Yes. Yeah. You know how all the published modules tend to like peter out around level 14? 14. Yeah. Now you guys got an orc horde to worry about now that you've, you know, solved the problem with the princes of the apocalypse. Yeah. Like you, you can go a little bit, a little bit bigger. You can. Hey, welcome back from Barovia. Orcs. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so. Um, I and you can really dig into it, and because it is a horde, it it's going to give you something radically different to fuck around with for a couple of levels. Oh yeah, it'd be a, it, it'd be a refreshing change of pace. So, do you have a unique encounter or two that you're thinking about as far as using any one or two of these guys? What do you think? Sure, let's do it. Got a seventeen. I got a twelve. I'm just not winning these dice rolls. No, today. not today. All right. Um, I mean, we played D and D with my kids before this, and they were rolling like fire, and you were rolling like shit. It was great. It's not been a good day. It's because I've been borrowing your dice all yeah, day. Yeah, probably. I mean, I was surprised you didn't show up with your own. Anyways, uh, as much as I love the idea of this dropping darkness on a group of people and yeeting them off a cliff, like we talked about earlier, or anything else like that. Um, I like the idea of the outcasts coming together. I love the idea of the Red Fang of Shargas knowing what needs to happen in a camping adventurer party that has caused a lot of issues. So they're going to drop the entire camp in darkness and watch as they unleash the nurtured ones into the sleeping camp. Yeah, but remember, the nurtured ones can't see in the darkness, right? So they don't I, have to. Just go in there and the first thing you trip over, explode. Yeah, I also, I also really like the idea that the red fangs can still get diseases and still become nurtured ones. Mm -hmm. You can add the nurture one shit to any of the other kind of orc. Yeah. Right? That's nutty to me. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. I also... Uh, the nurtured ones really open things up. It is a common um, trope, at least what I've seen across fantasy works, where you see goblins with dynamite strapped to their chest running forward. Yeah. Right? Or, I mean, there was the the poor unfortunate orc at Helm's Deep. Uh-huh. Right? Like, the idea of the suicide bomber mob member is pretty common. Like, it's not unheard of. But having it be disease is, is horrible. I like the idea that they have... Uh, just, just imagine your party's resting... There's the one guy on on watch. The area darkens around them. And as their senses are kind of coming to accommodate with the fact that they are in utter darkness, they hear distantly, not too distantly, getting closer, the anguish screams of something. You don't know what it is. Just, you just, don't know where it pain is. pain-filled like moans through the darkness. Ow, ow, ow. Right. Every step on that foot, which is just covered in boils. Yeah. 
right? Like that's that's what. And I think you smell those guys before uh-huh. you see them. I here, here's my here's my thing. Here's my encounter. I like the idea of you going through the main chambers. You're you're raiding the lair. You're wiping it all out. And then you come across this room where there are three big orogs. There are four uh, claws of Luthic. There are three cave bears. And behind them is a pen of six-year-old orc children who are sitting there gnashing their teeth, looking at you. They want to fight you, but they are kids. I, I, I also like the idea because we learned like as early as age four, orc children are given weapons to... You know, start to learn how to fight and to beat orcs, right? And, and by age so, 12, they're considered full, full members. Four, so I just like a bunch of like four to six year old orcs with their, I got a new dagger and I got to use it on you. I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them a 25 foot movement. I'm going to treat them like small creatures. They have one hit point. Uh, I'd give them like four hit points. Enough that like a magic missile is not going to wipe them out. They're going to get, they're going to yeah, get fair up fair enough. coming. Yeah. Right, so four is not the right answer there, but <laughs> um, but and then have them fucking charge like angry little freaking halflings. I think that's a load of fun to have them and to have like twenty five of them. Like, how big is a four year old orc? I would say they're still close to like I know my four year old is three and a half feet tall. I'm gonna say so. that that a four year old orc is probably the size of an eight year old human. Like, I bet they get big quickly. I, I yeah. And they're like a filled out eight-year-old. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk really quickly about plot hooks or um, or let's say even a mini campaign. Okay? Sure. So grab your die. Let's see what we got going on here. Eight. I got a nine. Yay. Yay. Win one. Yay. Um, Which first, plot hooks or campaigns? Well, the two are so closely tied. Fair I, enough. Like, okay, so here's my idea. I want to have an orc horde that needs to be infiltrated. Okay. And you've got a half orc in the party. You've got someone that can throw an illusion up, right? You've got a couple of people that can get in and out. Your disguise kit is working and you are able to, through some magical bullshit, get in there. Yeah. And you have to go behind enemy lines. Now, I know not everybody watches Deep Space Nine because you're not all brilliant like I am, but there's an amazing episode where they the there are four main characters that have to go behind enemy lines into the Klingon world when they all get plastic surgery to look like Klingons they've got to act like Klingons and then they they yeah. go behind enemy lines and they infiltrate the high council right so that they can try to find out who the shapeshifter is in the midst that is a fucking plot hook in a for a mini camp if you get caught you're fucked you are fucked but there's a changeling or a doppelganger in your midst we're here to help you. Now your bard has something to do, right? <laughs> and but I mean, they, they can try to convince all they want, but it's the barbarian who's going to gain the respect of the tribe. You can get in behind enemy lines, and even if you're captured, that is an intensely interesting handful of sessions, right? I love the idea of of the horde then turning to why do you want to help us? Uh, well. We're going to need you in the battle against, I don't know, Vecna, right? Yeah. Like, we cannot we cannot give more undead. We cannot remove warriors when when Asmodeus is, is coming through, yeah. right? Like, we need you. The gnolls are on the horizon and they're as much a threat to you as they are to us. We need you and we need your help. So let's work together on this. Right. And um, interestingly enough, now that I say that, 
I keep thinking about the Tanarak who is a um like the demon, like it's it's Baphomet, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's chaotic evil, which sure the orcs are chaotic evil, but Acheron is the lawful neutral, neutral slash evil. evil side. Yeah, so like there's a weird relationship. I wonder if Groomsh absolutely freaking hates devils. Because when you think about the tactics of demons or devils, and the blood war is on Groomsh's doorstep. And he's constantly fighting the literal legions with rank and file of goblins who would mimic that devil form as well. Strangely enough, the chaotic evil orcs are in the lawful... The way that they've got this balance with the planes and the idea of alignment is so strange when it comes to the eternal war. Yeah. With um, Groomsh and Maglubiot and, and... Orcs versus goblinoids and and so on and so forth. So, uh, for me, I hunting a troop of red fangs of sargass, uh, shargass sounds lots of fun um, as a murder mystery for for a session or two, right? Like figuring out that it was in fact these orcs over here that hi- that brought these orcs over to do this hit. Right, and you mm-hmm. have to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Um, use it more as a um, mystery murder mystery feel, like a, a a detective. Like it's more sleuthing than it is outright combat. You and your inquisitives, man. Well, I'm just for the like with orcs, the temptation to go full on. You know, what you see is what you get. Might is right. Battle yep. is super tempting. Super equipping. Right, this now you've got to deal with the fact that that orc horde sent a hit out on this important NPC, and now you've got they they took an item that you know an omen from the skies told the orcs that they needed. Yeah. Right, and now you've got to go and get that item back because they took it from the researcher and then murdered the researcher. We have really not done the idea of omens and superstitions, the justice that they deserve in orc culture. It is such a massive fucking part. It, it leads me to think like, um, I view a red fang of Shargas less like ninja assassin than like ritualistic serial killer. Yeah, but I think that I think that they're both. I, I mean, I think a little that bit they're both. trained, but in- like, is 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 uh, the Red Fang going to murder and disappear with no sign or uh, calling card left, or are they going to leave something? Because if you leave this, that's a good omen. That's that's that that is part of their superstition. That's part of it. Like, um, it's the taking a pinch of salt and throwing it over your left shoulder. For good luck. Yeah, there, that, there can right? be a superstition. Like every time that we we kill someone, we have to leave an effigy of Shargas here or a red fang. We'll, we'll take their canine and we'll drop it here so that there's a bloody tooth. Or we'll just paint it red, right? Yeah. So now you have bodies showing up across town with red with a single red tooth. I like that kind of calling card idea as well for when the war chief goes missing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the internal strife as well with the red fangs. So that you, you are going to get a very, very clear signal, but no words are spoken. Oh, imagine you're playing in a good party and you have that chaotic, neutral, more neutral orc horde that you have teamed up with. They're already that army that fills your ranks that you are 
as a party lose commands. This is tier two, tier three. Yeah. And then the Red Fangs took out that war chief because he's siding with elves. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder about Obold many arrows, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So anyways, um, the last thing I want to talk about is something that I spoke about at the beginning of the episode about the fear that drives orc kind. And obviously the idea that Mike makes right, as you just said, mingles with superstition in unique ways to make orcs strong brutes with the need to prove themselves while constantly mistrustful and paranoid. They live in constant fear of Groomsh, but he who watches isn't always the biggest motivating factor, especially if you can get orcs away from the horde. This is how you get orcs as minions. Strong and bloodthirsty warlords, overwhelming military forces, and powerful spellcasters can overthrow the orc leadership and subjugate the remaining warriors, and this will fracture and destroy the basic dynamic and often turn orcs into a kind of untrained militia to be used as fierce soldiers. Exactly, yeah. So it's also not unheard of for mages to manipulate omens to benefit themselves and become leaders over gullible and fearful orc tribes or for surviving orcs from defeated tribes to become mercenaries in the name of the orc gods. Orcs aren't well-read, but they have enough wisdom and charisma to know that successful minions and mercenaries stay alive longer than cowardly or ineffective ones. To this end, they do make excellent muscle and minions, but the slightest omen or dream can send any orc off on a mission from their god. So Dan... Do you like to use orcs as generic minions, or would you rather prefer to keep them insular and operating on their own? Let's roll. We've got, both got fives. You're coming down to my level on dice right a now. A ten. No, nope, I got a one. Never mind. Well, we both got a one, technically, but... Uh, mine's got a zero after it. Yeah. Yours has got a zero before it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Adam, you're going to be frustrated, man, but yes... Do I love it using them as minions? Yes. Do I love keeping them insular and operating them on their own terms? A hundred percent. I orcs are the most prolific race in the game in terms of bumping uglies. These no, guys that is not what bumping uglies means, Dan. That is what bumping uglies means. Oh, you mean that like I thought you meant that you were just like Walking into an ugly person and, oh, it's an orc. No, no. I I, I was talking specifically about sex. About what, Dan? Sex. Sex? Yeah, my Baptist tri- uh, life it means I can't say the word. You mean fucking, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> but you should be running into orcs everywhere. Why? Because they're everywhere. But they're, they're as numerous as humans, if not more. So it, the problem is you're going to be finding humans more in city city centers in civilization and protected little communes where they could plant roots. Orcs have no interest in planting roots. Orcs just want to loot and raid as they go and leave whatever refuse as they go in their wake. That is going to create not just wandering fully built and dynamic tribes, but war bands and, and groups and bandits – all having orcs within them. I love doing that, right? I don't know. Okay, so I, I'm assuming that I'm DMing for new players, people that okay. don't know this lore. I'm going to throw them up against the horde first. I'm going to let them get behind enemy lines. I want them to see the society first. Only once I have established the society will I break it down and say, hey, look, these guys don't follow these gods or yes. they're from a broken... Like, your players that you play with 
are experienced DM or D and D nerds. Most of them are DMs, mm-hmm. right? They know this lore already, so it's easy to subvert a trope here or there, or or go a little outside of the regular. But text. if your party is new and you're a new DM, new everything else, play into the basics first, into the what's expected first, and then subvert. Get yeah. your party used to the status quo before you go around it. I, I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. And when people want to play an orc early on, I'm going to hand them volos and say, learn what orc society is. And when you're done reading this chapter, come talk to me about why you're not a part of it. Because there's so much lore here. Yeah. There's tons. And it's spread out over two books, right? You can give a monster manual and a and volos and, and have them read through everything they can find on orcs and orogs and tanneruks and... Uh, but, oh my god, there's so much, right? So, anyways, I could keep going, but we've now pretty much said everything that I could find, that you could find, that yeah. the others could find in 5e on orcs. But, that doesn't mean that we're done talking about mobs. We've got lots more to cover. So, don't forget to come back next week when we take a look at goblinoids in the first of a handful of episodes about them, because there's a fuck ton of them. That's it for this episode on the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button. Or just tell your friends and the rest of your D&D party about the podcast because every set of ears helps us and we love you for it. Tell everyone when you do tell them that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube as well as most podcast apps. And remember to stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. All right, so it looks like James was checking his bibliography at the library because <laughs> he has found something else that, that that's a Littner joke. Because he has found something else that makes the Red Fang of Shargas an even more impressive foe. It's Mount. What kind of assassin needs a mount? How about one that wants to fucking fly? Anyway, I mentioned it before, but let's hear what James has to say about the matter. Now, something that I may have forgotten to mention. Most of the outposts of the orc red fang of Shargas have giant bats in their employ. Now, with an AC of 13, 22 hit points, a walk speed of 10 feet, and a fly speed of 30, these can cause a party a large hassle when paired with one of the assassins. With a strength and dexterity that are fairly strong, a constitution that is average, because it's a bat, the large beast gets a blind sight out to 60 feet and also has advantage on perception checks that involve its hearing. Though, if deafened, its echolocation ability and its blind sight it is unable to use. It only gets one attack per action, which is a bite attack, with a plus four to hit, and does 1d6 plus two piercing damage. When paired with an assassin orc of the Red Fang of Shargas, they make an impeccable duo being able to bypass magical darkness and sneak about to achieve their tasks undetected. So a party must be on the ball to catch wind of these creatures before they catch wind of you. Okay, 
I love this. I think it's super fun and flavorful. Uh-huh. Um, but and I think it's time to start looking at these quote unquote giant creatures because there's a ton of them in the back of the monster manual, and we got to start looking at them the way that they're obviously designed to be used, and that's one of two ways: as either mounts or hyper aggressive versions of their normal selves. You look into... Sometimes both. Yeah, sometimes both. I mean, you look into Tasha's, and Tasha's has rules to help you build your mounts and your NPCs and whatnot to be a little bit more... Do they have ways for me to mount my NPCs? Um, I mean, that's in the... Mon- that's in the... That's in the DMG? That's in the base DMG with, like, charisma checks. My How name. long do you figure until we get the erotic fantasy book that they gave us in 3.5? Um, the day that comes out is the day I stop covering 5e. Because we uncover 5e? Uh anyways, what were you saying, Dan? Words that led us down a trail that I regret. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of having flavored mounts for all of my minions. Yeah, what flavor are they, Dan? <laughs> my mind's not constantly in the gutter, Adam. <laughs> That's a goddamn lie. <laughs> I meant like mounts that match the f- the flavor of the the mobs culture that we're going in, right? Like, like, like we, orocs we, for... we see orocs for orcs. Now, I personally have always given them like giant boars and made them ride pigs, have well, them farm Because they pigs. tend to be pig-like. Because they right? tend to be pig-like fits, right? Yeah. Now, of course, I'm also a big World of Warcraft nerd, so like mixing them with wolves and wargs and stuff see, like that. that's goblin to me, That's though. goblin now. That is not orc now. Yeah. Right? So, um, despite what the Hobbit movies showed us. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a bit weird. So I, I, I would like to see, I mean, we see drow as a mob with their spiders or if you're in Eberron, yeah. they're scorpions. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, no. But in, as we will get to, I'm sure in some future episode, drow don't ride spiders anymore, man. I mean, they become sort of, them. they become driders, but no, they, they ride giant lizards, but you're right. Like there are consistent mounts that are that are thematically geared right. towards different mobs. So when I look at my the you know monstrous races that are outside of this mob idea, I'm thinking like simic hybrids or something else like that. Yeah, you got a bunch of simic hybrids. They now ride crabs. Not, you know, or lobsters God, or you something. Set it up like that for me. What am I supposed to fucking do? Damn, <laughs> got Jesus crabs, ass face. Uh, this one rides the tentacle. Haha. But like you have I'm a sucker for tentacles. Like what what does a Durgar ride? Um probably a male Durgar. I'm thinking something more along the lines of like naked mole rats. Like god <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Put some pants on your mole rats, people. This has been a public service announcement. <laughs> we went the long way around to get there. Yeah, pretty much. No, so I, I really do like the idea of these um, giant bats. Orcs riding giant bats are great, but my favorite thing about it is the fact that you're going to hear, you walk into the magical darkness and there's loud screeching as they use their echolocation. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. Especially great. if they're coming up out of some sort of gorge or gully. And- I mean, you're coming into contact with these guys in massive underground caverns that have like a chasm in between them right yeah like like the, the, the bisect this massive cavern because you want this thing to have room to fly 
but it should also be underground because, you know, it leans in that direction. Right. Or up in the mountainous regions, which is what... Oh, fuck. You're walking along the side of, like, a narrow mountain pass, and these things start harrying you? What do you do? What do you do, Adam? I throw the gnome to them, and then I run. Oh, yeah, I guess that's fine. You're usually the gnome, Dan. That's less fine. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs>